WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 315. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 17th of March, 2018. Today's episode, helicopter crash in the East River, crash in Kathmandu, bad news for pets on jets, more news, your feedback, and this week's plain tale, Lady Lex and Scoop's Wildcat. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, flight 315 is ready for pushback. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and I am Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting, as I said, live from the uh, headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. And joining me today is... Doctor? Doctor? A doctor? 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 A skydiver, a marathon runner, strength training junkie, an IPA connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot dr steph hey captain jeff it is so good to be back with you guys um i'll just say real briefly i'm pleased to say that the contract negotiations were successful so i am able to rejoin you all and uh hopefully be here for a long time to come without more breaks but excellent yeah, how much you getting nowadays steph? uh i'd rather not say actually <laughs> but let's just say it was, it was successful so yeah, we don't want to uh, cause any strike problems with the, uh, the, the yeah. rest yeah. of the crew. I'm going on strike. <laughs> See ya. Let's, let's okay. just say that it was you know, significant uh, uh, multiplication of my previous salary. Yes, multiple times her previous yeah. salary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, crew, <laughs> we have from his mobile studio by the bay, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, currently captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick Anderson. <laughs> Hello, Jeff. Hello, the very rich Steph who's going to buy herself another boat <laughs> and, a, and a Jeep with doors this time if she can afford it. Nah. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Yeah, I've struggled all the way across uh, the world to the far side of this vast continent. Damn it, this place is big. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yeah, exactly. We'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, if I kept on going, I'd have been back in the ocean, so I'm very glad we stopped. <laughs> We're glad you stopped as well. And also joining us last but not least from wow. Bike Week in Daytona Beach, Florida. Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, soon to be Captain Dana. Good morning from sunny, sunshine state of Florida in Daytona Beach, uh, home of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, 
uh, sitting here watching uh, some friends around the, the studio, my mobile studio, and glad to be able to join everybody in having another great show. As I just watched the cat sneak out of the house, that's why you heard me go grumble here. Um, so anyways, glad to be back. There was no, a real cat show. there. I thought it was just somebody mimicking a cat. No, there's four cats here, actually. Oh. And I don't like cats, but Peanut is the coolest cat. It might as well be a dog. I thought so. you were allergic to cats. Highly allergic. Oh, do you have medication or something? to? I'm taking lots of medication. Ah. But last year was the experiment. Last year when I was on the show via my phone, mm-hmm. um, I was here for a week, and that was the experiment. I took uh, several different medications, and this year it's uh, working just as well. So I'm, I'm happy to be able to stay at my friend's house and enjoy another fantastic week of motorcycle nirvana. Well, tell us about that, Dana. What's uh, what's what's the big deal about Bike Week? Is that a big deal for uh, Harley Davidson yeah. and other big giant bike riders? It's it's a huge deal. Um, I don't know how many bikes here, but I've got to guess probably in the order of over a hundred thousand. Um, wow. yeah, in, in Main Street is a big deal. It's uh, one street where on both sides of the street, especially at night, it's really cool. Um, both sides of the street completely lined up or uh, bikes on both sides and you get all, you know, everybody showing their lights and then everybody rides up and down main street with their really, really cool. Uh, uh, A lot of people have choppers. I don't know if anybody knows other than a helicopter. uh, Chopper is basically a a custom bike. Uh, A lot of people have uh, uh, bring those type of show bikes into uh, the Daytona area or any type of uh, motorcycle uh, event. And uh, it's really cool just to sit back and people watch, you, you know, maybe 100,000 bikes in, on Main Street. Maybe there were probably 300,000, maybe 400,000 people there last night or more. Wow. Um, so we had, we, it's, it's a great time. Just, uh, it, it's amazing how many doctors, uh, lawyers, pilots, you know, all, all the professionals in the world that, you know, get up, dress up in their Harley gear and, and want to look tough and grow out a little bit of a beard and uh, have uh, have a great time. So we're all rubbing elbows. As a matter of fact, I, I met three Embry-Riddle students last night, talking to them uh, at uh, this place called, um, oh, my God, I'm having a brain fart. Fart, I said to say fart. But, uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, oh, my word. I, I go to the place all the time, and I can't remember the Where name. Where did his brain go? It went. Oh. No, this, this, yeah, this thing getting old. <laughs> Oh my God! Getting old stinks. Sure, it wasn't just the activity. Froggies, okay. I got it. Froggies, uh, Froggies. It's it's an unbelievable location on Main Street. So, um, yeah, just having a great time, hanging out with. The, if you hear some background noise, I'm I'm at my buddy Rick's house, who is a, a fellow aviator. He uh, actually went to Riddle. He's from the Northeast as well in the Boston area, um, and he is no longer flying. He gave it up. Uh, he was doing the uh, flying checks, flying traffic, flying pipeline patrol type of flying before. And, and he actually did a little air ambulance out of Yuma, Arizona. Um, so it's great hanging out with him. But you might hear some background noise because it's my, you know, all the guys that are here in the house. Plus, well, tell them to keep keep it down and shut up. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's ambience. <laughs> ambience, man. Bike week. Did you uh did you ride your bike down or did you trailer or how did <clears throat> how does that all work? Well, this year decided to trailer because it's not exactly the warmest weather. 
I mean, the other night I was screaming like a little girl because it was one o'clock in the morning. It was about 39 degrees and I was on my bike. It was cold. Ooh. So it was, it was, it was terrible. And I had every layer bit of clothing, stitch of clothing I had on and I was still freezing. Um, we decided to trail her down because, uh, the lovely Miss Julie, the, my better half, she, um, she worked Tuesday and we decided to leave Tuesday after she got out of work. So don't like to ride the motorcycle, especially on open road at night. So we, we put it on the trailer and, and brought it down. And then Sunday, 50 to 60% chance of rain. So uh, best place to be is inside a truck trailering versus being on the motorcycle. I've, I've been on the motorcycle in ice cold rain and it's miserable. So we, we decided to bring it down on, on the back of the trailer. So how's the weather today? Is it uh, not raining? Finally, just it was actually, believe it or not, it's almost like they took a snapshot from last year, the weather, and moved it to this year because the beginning of the week, all the way up until Friday, was pretty chilly. Oh, last night actually got chilly. Yesterday was a very nice day, like mid 70s. Today, finally, it's supposed to be 81 degrees, I think is what the prediction is. Hmm, uh, and of nice. course, as soon as we leave, it's supposed to be in the 80s the entire time. And it was in the 80s the entire time before we came. So it's always, it seems to be bike week. It works out that way. Well, it's raining here and 55 degrees. So perfect. Well, uh, even more the reason why I'm glad I trailered because, uh, you know, riding back up north and that uh, cold is miserable. And and then, uh, you know, a lot of live events here in in Daytona. Um, We we were going to see a man called Hairball tonight at the Broken Spoke, which is an outdoor venue. But this, this band is unbelievable. Anybody that likes hair bands, uh, and hair bands being from the 80s-ish uh, era. Uh, when they say hair, they mean fuzzy hair. Most people can't see my hair you know, on, on the radio show, but I'm wearing my spiked uh, hair. Um, it's it's amazing. The, the actual bands play uh, th- usually three songs in tribute to each band that they play. So in other words, they'll play three bands, uh, three songs from Kiss. Uh, and Kiss, uh, you know, the guy, the lead singer comes out dressed, in the makeup, in, in the exact same outfit. Or if you see, you know, uh, they pay, play tribute to Ozzy. The guy looks like Ozzy, dressed like Ozzy, sounds like Ozzy. And then even Prince, guy looks just like Prince, sounds like Prince. And they're not, you know, they're not, uh, it, it's live music. They're, they're not, uh, it's not pre-recorded music. So they actually go out and find people that sound and look just like the artists. It's an amazing show. So. That sounds great. It's, uh, one of the best things about Bike Week, other than the uh, liquid uh, consumption, is uh, the <laughs> amazing people watching and the amazing shows that we get to <laughs> that we get to uh, get to go witness. And speaking of liquid con- consumption, Julie is still in bed. She's oh. not feeling so good this morning. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'm just kind of chuckling in the chat, the live chat room here. Uh, Nev says this is a vocabulary that I can only hope to understand one day. <laughs> Nev, I understood every word of that perfectly. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> serious. That's funny. All right. Well, very good. I'm glad that you could make it. Uh, I was not planning on you being with us here. I'm glad you were able to uh, arrange it so that you could. Dana, I, I'll leave if you'd like. No, I no, mean, no. I know I'm no, moving stay the there. show. Stay I mean, there. Stay there. Stay there. Can we take a vote? Uh, well, let's move on <laughs> to, uh, let, uh, you know what? We're going to save the best for last. Sorry, guys. Uh, Captain Nick, um, what is uh, going on with you? You're over there in, uh, as you mentioned uh, in the beginning, uh, the West Coast up on the uh, the, the, the bay. 
the San Francisco Bay. So uh, what's new with you? Certainly, sir. Yeah, um, this is not a very common trip for us uh, getting out here because the bin liners generally do it. But uh, we've got yet another bin liner, EOG, waiting for spares. So uh, the uh, Airbus is back on it again, and it's a very pleasant place to come. It's quite a long way. We did uh, well over 10 hours to get here uh, yesterday. And um, uh, we're in a new hotel, so I have no clue where it is, other than it's somewhere near Union Square, which I gather is good, um, and had an interesting flight out. You know, I was busy working on plane tales so that I recorded uh, as soon as I got into the hotel last night so I would have it ready, because I've had a pretty busy week, quite honestly, um, mainly just in the office, uh, in our headquarters, doing um, safety and equipment procedures training, and then uh, we get a whole day of um, management presentations on how the company's doing and uh, you know changes that might be happening. A lot of it commercial and confidence, so I can't talk about it. But um, in between those two days, we get a nice uh, meal out with the management guys who take us all out for a big meal and pay for the bill and we get we drink like fish and uh, eat like um dana and have a good time so uh yeah it, that, that, excuse me but <laughs> <laughs> excuse me i didn't think you'd spot that dana um <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I, I've been a bit busy. So I wrote the plane tales coming out and uh, I was just sitting there with my laptop open and watching the world go by. And uh, <laughs> we get a few things on the Airbus that ring the uh, the bells and come up on a big red master caution and uh, all hell tends to break loose. And the, the, the ones that you always think of, like fires, engine failures, all those main ones. But there are a couple that are still important but don't require quite as much panic in the flight deck, like somebody decides to smoke in the toilet and we get a toilet smoke alarm. Or one of our aircraft used to have a tendency to bring on an RFC of G warning uh, prematurely, and that used to do the same thing. And uh, I tell you, when it's all quiet and you're, you're both sitting there and just you know watching – uh, Greenland uh, disappear under you, admiring the scenery. Um, when the bells go off, it does really uh, get your attention. And yesterday, uh, we had one that came up and said that the uh, oh, we're a flight level three eight zero, and we tucked the flaps away, uh, you know, straight after takeoff. So we haven't touched anything since. And the uh, warning came up and said that the flap lever wasn't at zero anymore. And we went, what? <laughs> so, so all the bells are going off, and I'm looking down going, that flat leader is at zero, and what's more, our flaps are stowed. Uh, and uh, then and we cancelled the warning and looked at each other, and then we got another warning telling us that one of the uh, flaps like control computers had decided to um, uh, hide in the corner and wasn't going to play anymore. So that uh, I suspect there's a sensor on the flap handle that uh, had just gone out of tolerances and brought up the warning and the flap control computer went now nah, i know you're a broken sensor so i'm gonna turn myself off oh so smart. which it did it is clever but just for that those few seconds until we kind of analyzed the situation <laughs> and what's why it was a rather sweet moment because we had this lovely young uh, cabin crew member you know absolute classic acme red young lady uh pretty blonde, vivacious, very young, had just walked on the flight deck to introduce herself and sit down and have a chat to us. 
And for about like 10 seconds, there was nothing but swear words <laughs> coming, out, coming out for the pilot. So when we sort of dealt with this and, and turned around, she just disappeared. <laughs> she just got, I'm out of here. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I'm trying to picture this. The uh, first officer probably thought, oh, she's cute. And she, he, to, he, to turn around in his seat, he probably grabs the flap handle <laughs> yeah. to, uh, you know. Yeah, and I never, th- I never thought of that. My first officer <laughs> is a lovely guy. Well, well this is the one that was sitting. I've got two on this flight because of the long flight. The one that was sitting beside me is a huge bear of a man. He's uh, called Johan. He's uh, a Swedish, and he's uh, an absolute brilliant bloke, funny as hell. And he's he's the size of half half a house with a huge beard, just as you imagine a sort of uh, um, woodsman or a like you Viking. Know, a, a picture yeah, of a Viking. But, that guy from the from the 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 wild north. He, he's half Viking, half Scander <laughs> Scander hooligan. As uh, we <laughs> we sit beside me, so I don't. Yeah, he he was a pretty good man to have in uh, in a uh, <laughs> in a fight, a bar fight. So I don't know if uh, he was uh, trying to chant her up or not, but uh, it wouldn't take much for him to knock the flap lever. There you but go. But no, it was just a false uh, indication. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got here fine, and I checked in uh, with uh, some folks. Now, it was a bit of a hit and miss as whether I was going to get here because my roster had changed several times, so I uh, sort of didn't plan on doing anything, but I've had so many contacts with um, uh, local West Coast guys and girls since I've arrived that uh, decided to try and organize a uh, meetup for this afternoon. Now, I know most San Franciscans won't be listening to this right now because it's not even 8 o'clock in the morning and it's Saturday. So every Sunday. Hello. He's frozen again. Yeah. Someone, someone go shake Nick. Uh, you, got, you froze again there. Ah, am I back? No, yeah, you're, you're back. back. Okay, great. The Thirsty Bear Organic Brewery. Thirsty Bear. Um, it's uh, in the middle of San Francisco. I haven't been there. Uh, I'm told it's about a 10-minute walk from uh, Union Square, so uh, uh, hopefully see as many people that can make it there. No real time. I'm going to be there. After the show finishes, I'm going to wind up, wander over there, grab some lunch, and just be there most of the afternoon. Excellent. I've been there. I can attest to it's, uh, I don't know, it's great. Oh, excellent. Good. Well, looking forward to that. And then I'm hooking up with Fred uh, there, and uh, I think we're going up to uh, his place uh, this evening. Very good. Thanks. Very good. Please say hello for uh, all of us all on us. the crew. Certainly will do. All right. Um, let's see. Dana. No, we already did Dana. Steph. Yes. So where uh, the heck have you been these last That's several a weeks? Great question. I was actually, while you guys were talking, I was trying to look back at the calendar to even remember because it goes so far back now, I've forgotten what I was doing. It was like another when month, I, I think. It was. It was a previous month when I <laughs> fell off the face of the planet for a little while. Um, and again, I am my apologies for all of that. Um, so first of all, happy St. Patrick's day to everyone. And I'd just like to point out that before the show started, I was the only one that was actually wearing anything green. That is not true. I was wearing this nice green shirt that you're seeing mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. video. Yeah, no, it's not true. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Anyway, happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone out there. So yeah, uh, last month. So the first, so I think it's been three weeks since I've been on the show, or I missed three weeks in a row. The first week, it was because I was out in Utah for a conference. Yes, a real conference. Um, 
and uh, did some skiing while I was out there. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And then the week after that, I think it just, I couldn't make my schedule line up with your schedules for some reason. Like when everyone was working and traveling, I was stuck at work, if I remember correctly. And, and then skiing. Uh, well, I was I was back. I think you were <laughs> surfing here. somewhere in South I Africa was, or something. I or? was here. I wasn't doing anything oh. exciting or exotic, just working. And then last week I had every intention of being with you all on the show on what was that Sunday morning mm-hmm. and stuff cropped up in my personal life Saturday night and it just I had had to take care of that. So So I, I thought it was uh, weren't you down in Miami with uh Miami Rick and plotting <laughs> to do your new show, the airline pilot people? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. See? I have no She's idea what you're talking about. Being very coy right now. I think she was out meeting her agent trying to negotiate. <laughs> might be. There, there were some contract negotiations, but uh, <laughs> just to, uh, to catch you up on my life, what I've been doing, I don't even know if I've said any of this on the show and you'll have to, I, I apologize if I've already mentioned it at some point. I know some of it's been on social media or group chats or things like that, but um, exciting things. I bought a new car. Um, it hey. does have doors, Nick. <laughs> um, it's the same car I had before. But Earth, would you, uh, I suppose that you have to pay extra for them. I bet, though. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it's you an do, option, but it's it's worth it. You know, they'll they'll come <laughs> off as soon as the weather gets warm enough. Don't worry. Um, but now, just a, a new Jeep Wrangler. I like my Jeep Wranglers, and uh, it's a pretty color. Time, yeah, it's a it's a pretty like bright blue. Um, and actually, it was really the whole reason I bought it was because I've been looking at that color for a long time, and I decided I really wanted it. And one showed up on the local uh, dealership lot, and I said, "Yeah, heck with it. I'm just going to go get it." So it is a bit fancier than the Jeeps I've had in the past. It has all kinds of things that Jeeps just should not have, like uh, heated leather seats, and like I, I don't know how that's going to go when I forget to put the top on and it rains. But we'll find out. Now so, you know why she uh, was requesting the pay raise. <laughs> Help pay for these this things new don't thing. come for free, you know. <laughs> um, so that was actually. I noticed that Captain Nick in the chat room says only girls buy a car for the color. <laughs> that Captain <laughs> Nick, he's so correct. <laughs> no, but I, I buy the Jeep because I love the the Jeep Wrangler. So, um, and this is actually the fourth one I've owned in the last three years. <laughs> uh, <sh> <laughs> no, no, my first one I bought in 1999. So. But uh, so anyway, I was out in Utah and I did some uh, I, I'm a skier. So I usually I bring my ski boots out with me and I usually what I do is I'll rent demo skis so that I can try out new things. and I don't have to check my skis and drag them across the country because that just gets really annoying. But it's easy enough to bring my own ski boots so they're nice and comfortable. Um, but the first day I was out there, I decided to go out with some friends and go snowboarding. And I did that because I've skied with them in the past and our skill levels don't quite match up. But I thought I could match them a little better snowboarding. I'm not as good of a snowboarder. It's been a long time since I've done it, probably five years or so. And I was like, oh, this will be great. I'll, I'll rent a snowboard and the boots will be so much more comfortable than ski boots. Well, I'll tell you what, I got up there on the slopes and those boots were not comfortable at all by the time I started snowboarding. And by, you know, we only were out there for a couple of hours in between the conference sessions. And my foot was really, really, really sore. The side of my leg was really sore. I was like, oh, I just kind of overdid it. It's probably because I'm not a great snowboarder. I was, my technique was terrible. Um, but this whole time I've been running and training for marathons and things like that. So of course I kept running with my sore foot and I think I've developed a horrible case of tendonitis. Um, I did x-ray it just to make sure there were no stress fractures or anything. Um, but that leads me to the following week. I don't know what week was this. I think the weekend of the 
third and fourth. I was out for my long training run. Um, I was doing 20 miles and I was 17 miles into the 20 miles. And I think because my foot was sore and bothering me a little bit, I, I just didn't pick it up as I was running fully and tripped over my own foot over nothing, flat surface, and fell down right onto my hand. And I broke my finger. So that was exciting. Oh, that was finally uh, <laughs> determined that it was oh, actually yeah, a it's, break? it's actually broken. Oh. Yeah. Um, but it's better now. I mean, I can, you know, bend and extend and it doesn't really hurt anymore. So kind of right in the, almost within the joint itself is where I actually broke it. But the, the hand specialists that I worked pretty closely with took a look at the pictures. They said, no, that's actually not a bad place to have, have a break because it's pretty much within the joint capsule. So that keeps it stable. So there's no reason to splint it or, or restrict range of motion. He said, in fact, just keep, keep moving it and bending it so it doesn't become stiff and tight. So that was good. What else? Um, I think that's about it. Those were the big things. New car, broken finger, marathon training, the usual work. <laughs> the usual. <laughs> so did that affect your ability to give people their therapy? No, no. Not at all. For the first, uh, you know, day or two afterwards, I had actually had a little bit of trouble writing, but fortunately I'm a doctor and no one can read my handwriting anyway. So it really didn't make a noticeable difference. Mm. I thought Dana was going to ask if that affected your ability to extend your middle finger. No, fortunately I I spared the middle finger. I did have a little bit of uh, bruising on the, the ring finger as well, but that was not broken. So but I'm not sure how I managed to get those two fingers and not the the one in between. <laughs> Jeff, it is a family show after all. I'm trying to be nice. Yes, you are. And thank you very I much. I thought for I was that. a mute on the previous comment. Sorry. <sighs> Let's see. Well, um, it seems like there would be more than that stuff. You've been gone for so long. I know, but you know, everyone thinks I lead this really exciting, glamorous life. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, I really just work a lot. Yeah. And that's about all I've done. So good work ethic. Yes. Yes. I wish it was more exciting. You know, what is, you know, what is missing from my life and I need to get back out of there and do, I haven't been flying. <laughs> flying. Wow. <laughs> Harsh. Uh, flying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I need to get out there and go flying. And actually, I think I've gotten to the point where I actually need a BFR. So I'm going to have to get that all set up and talk to Dave. I'm available. I know. Yeah. Maybe we should, should set up some time, but absolutely. Well, so I was thinking yeah. about you, Steph, uh, when uh-huh. um, Stephen and I flew as Mooney to Greenville downtown. I remember the time that you and your dad flew the Cirrus. Yeah, we came out over. there. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That, that was... wasn't actually that long ago, but no, mm-hmm. I just need to get myself uh, current again and out there. And uh, that's on the to-do list very in the very near future. So hopefully I'll have some nice flying updates here in the next few weeks. The, the uh, chat room is saying that they were hoping that I was going to show up on the show with a green mustache and... I wouldn't even know how to do a green mustache. Is there something you can spray in your hair or something? I guess spray paint. green Kool-Aid. Spray paint. Thanks, Dana. <laughs> that would, you're very helpful. Go to Home Depot and just, just grab a can of green spray paint and spray it on your mustache and it'll be easy to get out. <laughs> you just start the morning with a spinach health drink. There you go. Yeah, uh, there you go. green smoothie. Okay. Well, next time maybe. Oh, let's see. I had a uh, four-day trip this week. Um, went to um, mostly Omaha. Ended up Omaha the first night, Miami the second night, Omaha the third night, and then home on Thursday. But when I was going through on the second day through Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, very short 
turnaround time uh, between Omaha and Minneapolis and Minneapolis, uh, Miami. I bumped into, well, not really, but uh, I saw, uh, met Jim Schofield. He was at the departing gate. You know, we went into gate F11 or something, and then we had to leave or go all the way down to the southern part of the terminal to gate G21 or something like that to uh, catch our flight to our, uh, our airplane to Miami. And Jim was there at the gate, and uh, we, I've talked about Jim before. We've met up before a few times. He sent in uh, several pieces of feedback, so I just wanted to do a shout-out to uh, Jim. He's a, a ground worker, a ramp worker for ACME in Minneapolis. And uh, just wish that I had had more time, Jim, to spend talking with you, but unfortunately, they wanted to operate the flight on time. So, mm. That's the way it works. Um, also, uh, the next day out of Miami, uh, heading to Atlanta, uh, we were walking up to the gate and this young lady looks over and says, oh, I feel so much better now that I see Captain Jeff. <laughs> and my uh, first officer kind of looks like, what? How does she know who, who you are? And uh, this is Nanette. And she just sent in feedback recently correcting me, by the way, uh, regarding the, uh, what do you call that? The uh, containment, the PED uh, containment oh, yes. Yes. Uh, system on the uh, Mad Dog. She does. She said, don't give short shrift to the Mad Dog uh, captain. So uh, got to um, talk with her. She obviously was part of the flight attendant crew from Minneapolis to, I'm sorry, Miami to Atlanta. So it was great seeing Nanette. And uh, let's see what else. Uh, just quickly, Malcolm, I mentioned this on the last episode. And let's see, today is the 17th. So tomorrow, if you're listening from London or in the London area and you want to meet up with Malcolm, he said, uh, I'll be spending a day in London on my way back from Europe on Sunday, March 18th. Sorry for the short notice, but if anyone around London would like to get together for a brief meetup that day, should shoot me a message. So again, look for his message in the meetup folder in Slack. And speaking of Slack, let me pull that up. And by the way, if you're not a member of our Slack group, you need to be because that's where a lot of this kind of information is discussed. And uh, let's see, I'm trying to look through here and see. Oh, look. The old dot pilot is uh, having a meetup. Oh, he just already talked about that, didn't he? Uh, after the show today in San Francisco at the Thirsty Bear. Yep. Um, let's see. Anyway, so if you want to check it all out, uh, listen for how you can join the Slack group if you haven't done so already. By uh, Hillel will tell us how to do that at the end of the show. So uh, let's see what else. Oh, some. Sad news, uh, the physicist uh, Stephen Hawking uh, passed away. Uh, I think he was 76 years old. He mm -hmm. passed away on the, was it the day before Pi Day or was it Pi Day? Was it 313, I think, that he, that he no, passed? Was or was it uh, the 14th? It's the same day as Albert Einstein's birthday, correct? Okay. I think so, yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was either the 13th or the 14th, whatever. Um, you know what? I think I have it. I may have that in my... One of my browser windows here, Stephen Hawking, 2006, died March 14th, 2018. So we were correct. Pi day. Anyway, um, I saw this on liveatc.net and apparently the folks, uh, the fine folks at the John F. Kennedy International Airport 
paid tribute to Mr. Hawking uh, on their ATIS frequency. So let's take a listen. Kennedy Air Force ATIS information officer 
slash coffee. Thank you, everyone. Stand by for news. Okay, we're going to start with uh, the first item in the news folder, which is um, a helicopter crash uh, in the East River off of Manhattan. Uh, The red helicopter carrying six people zoomed over the East River, flying along a popular route for sightseers who want to view the Manhattan skyline. But something appeared wrong with its path on Sunday evening. It was flying too fast and descending too quickly, witnesses said. From high-rise apartment buildings and parks along the river, they watched as the helicopter, losing altitude as if it were landing on solid ground, plunged into the chilly water. Its swirling rotors chopped into the river, eventually coming to a stop as it tilted, capsized, and began to sink shortly after 7 p.m. Moments later, the pilot escaped, climbed to the top of the wreckage, and yelled for help, a witness said. A flotilla of tugboats and emergency boats converged on the crash site a couple of hundred yards north of Roosevelt Island, and began a frenzied search for others on board. Let's listen to some of the uh, ATC live audio. Hey, LaGuardia, good evening. Helicopter 350, Lima Hotel. Helicopter 350, Lima Hotel, LaGuardia Tower, Squawk 0205, take position request. 0205, Newtown Creek 900, late takes up the East River on station. North End Central Park, south of the Center Line, three one at all times at two thousand is able for uh early month. Early month so uh you can quest up our space that's west out of below two thousand, Timber three zero zero six. Just remain south of the center center line at uh, thirty one. All right, clear in two thousand south of the center line. Now we got Alpha Golf over there. We'll maintain visual for early month. Sure, thank you. Zero motel, mayday, mayday, mayday. Early motel, we got you okay? I'm sorry, say again? East River, engine failure. They come a little broken. I'd say it one more time. He had an engine failure over the East River, Lima Hotel. Okay, uh, you require any assistance? It was a Mayday call, LaGuardia. Okay, got it. LaGuardia, did you have this position, that, the, the last position reported for him? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Five thousand golf, Cody. Yes, sir, go ahead. You uh, see Lima Hotel down there in the uh, East River? No, sir. Um, we're going to make this pass, or we're going to do a run down these river and look for them. Did um, NYPD get notified, please? They have some police boats out? Yeah, they, uh, we're on the phone with them now. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, just trying to get an exact location. It was at the north tip uh, last time. So, what's the outfit for Harlem? What do you want to do? We're going to take it across uh, Midtown South of the Empire State Building. If you need any assistance before we turn, uh, let me know. You're going to take the uh, East River going down that way? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, just let me know if you see anything in the uh, East River. Uh, zero Lima Hotel report going down over by the uh, North Tip. Copy that. Uh, we'll uh, we'll uh, hold up on station once we uh, pick them up. Make sure everybody's okay. LaGuardia 5 Alpha Golf, if you don't mind, if we could shoot over to North Tip of uh, Roosevelt, take a look for him, please. I love Golf, that's true. Look, trap, helicopter North Tip southbound. The helicopter currently at 600. He's going to be up here uh, climbing up short. Thank you, Alpha Golf. LaGuardia 2-7 Whiskey Alpha is uh, directly above the uh, the, uh, the uh, site. 
It appears the aircraft is inverted in the water. Right, thank you. The aircraft is upside down. Roger, we're relaying the information now, thank you. The boat is pulling up on scene right now. Roger, thank you. LaGuardia, 7 with the Alpha at the uh, scene has uh, one professor uh, pilot there, so uh, he's out on top of the uh, aircraft. Okay. All right, well, the, there's a little bit left in the... Um in this uh, audio here, which you can listen to the whole thing um, by going to airlinepilotguy.com and today's episode, and then you can uh, find that link in the show notes and you can listen to the rest. But that was uh, the bulk of the audio there. And again, uh, the uh, helicopter crashed into the East River. It was on a photo uh, sightseeing, uh, photo shoot kind of a flight. Apparently, they had uh, removed the doors of the helicopter so that the photographers could have a better um, or better shots, better access, uh, you know, without the doors, you know, blocking the view. And because of that, they were tightly harnessed in the helicopter. And uh, the uh, report says that uh, emergency responders had to cut the uh, passengers out of their harnesses. And uh, that's one thing that the NTSB is taking a look at now, because apparently these harnesses were um, configured such that you had to uh, take a knife to um, basically cut yourself out of them. That was part of their uh, safety briefing. Eric Adams, a travel journalist based in Pennsylvania, said on Sunday night he had been on a similar flight, which took off soon after the helicopter crashed. The helicopter was a doors-off flight, Adam said, meaning the sides of the craft were open to the elements. Passengers on such flights, able to take pictures in the open air, are strapped into their seats tightly. He also said that the same safety briefing as the passengers on the crashed helicopter he received had lacked fundamental details. It was a doors-off flight with harnesses, Adams wrote on Twitter. They would have been difficult to remove in an emergency since you're attached from the rear. They provide knives to slice harnesses, but didn't physically point out where they were once we had them on. We had flotation devices as well. Uh, Liberty Helicopters uh, did not respond to a request for comment. Yeah, really um, sad, tragic story there. You know, and it's it's funny, you think about it initially, it's like, well, the doors were off. So if, you know, assuming that they don't have serious injuries from the, the actual impact of the the crash, you would think that would make egress from the helicopter a lot easier, but not if the harness is attached, you know, basically at your back and you don't have a way to easily access the release mechanism and you don't know where the knife is to, you know, actually cut through the harness and get your out, not get yourself out. Not that that would be easy to do once you're actually in cold water anyway. Um, yeah, that's just a really, really terrible situation. Very sad. I, I would hope that the investigation looks closely at the reason for this type of harness because uh, health and safety probably says that uh, we can't afford to have you guys accidentally opening your harness uh, because you're you know you're unfamiliar, there's no door, you could fall out, etc. But there's got to be a balance between that and being able to open it in an emergency. Exactly. So, uh, I mean... Yeah, I have to agree. The doors are open. The, the you know the your route to safety is so simple. You're just going to release your harness and and roll out of the door. 
and not to be able to release your harness in that situation is just an appalling error. Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, some people were, they're also going to look at what exactly happened to cause the aer- uh, the helicopter to come down or for the engine to fail. And uh, the pilot reportedly said that he thought that one of the passenger's bags had somehow bumped the emergency fuel cutoff switch or something to the, uh, to the single engine. Uh, so uh, they're, they're going to check that out as well. But um, what else was I going to say? Oh, when I was looking at the the video, I was thinking to myself, oh, it looks like it has floats because there were these big floaty looking things on the skids. And uh, apparently those are like emergency floats that can be activated from uh, one of the control um, devices in the uh, in the aircraft. I believe that uh, it's a requirement to have the switch or the activation mechanism for activating these emergency floats somewhere easily accessible to the pilot. And apparently that was one of the things that he was able to do. He actually activated the emergency floats before the helicopter hit the water. Unfortunately, it looks as if one of the, I think it's three flotation devices on each skid. And it looks like one of the flotation devices on the right skid didn't fully inflate or inflate at all. And they're thinking that might be why when it hit the water, it ended up capsizing or rolling over to the right. So again, they're going to be looking at that as a all those Swiss cheese holes lining up for those poor passengers, all five of them. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. And uh, I, I, we've got to mention the air traffickers uh, query to the Mayday. Mayday <laughs> yeah. Do you need go. any assistance? <laughs> yeah. No. Right. Give me a break. Man. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion going on about this in the uh, live chat room right now. And, uh, you know, I think everyone is correct that he probably really meant to say, what assistance do you need? You know, the, the question really was, what can I do to help you? Except he's caught off guard too, because, you know, you're just, like anyone else you're sitting there doing your job and an emergency it suddenly happens and you try to get the words out and it just doesn't come out quite right and it sounds very insensitive on his part but right. hopefully benefit of the doubt he was really trying to say what assistance can can i get you yeah, like that startle effect but it, it sounds, yeah yeah exactly but it sounds horrible when they you know when you listen to it on the recording because it just sounds like he's going well do you need assistance and then you got the other guy chiming in going it was a mayday call (laughs) mayday call laguardia very sarcastically idiot very very new york (laughs) you know i was surprised how quickly and i'm not sure uh, if this audio file that we're listening to was was edited so it was all compressed together or if that was real time but if it was real time it does sound like things really happened quickly i mean people were on the scene very very quickly but unfortunately that uh didn't seem to make a difference for the passengers. No, it's a pretty busy piece of uh, water, isn't mm-hmm. it? So mm-hmm. I would yeah. have thought you'd get uh, ferries or perhaps pleasure vessels. The fact that the emergency services were there so quick was a, a really good. Yeah. Well, and it was right near the, uh, I don't know if I actually looked at a map of where the accident actually happened, but they said it was near the, was it near the, where was it in the East River? It was north, uh, just north of the uh, of Roosevelt uh, Island. Roosevelt. Oh, okay. Of- yeah. So that's. I mean, you're still fairly close to land on either side there. I don't know where they have emergency services yeah, situated, but fairly 
I would imagine fairly close. They were pretty close. Just because close. of how busy um, that. Yeah, if you look at the video. That waterway is. Yeah, they were they were pretty close. I think it's something around 86th or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, East 86th near Manhattan's okay. Upper East Side. And yes, Liz, uh, floaty looking things is a technical aviation term, in my vocabulary. Here on the APC, it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you want a hundred percent, go to another show. <laughs> exactly. This is not the place for you. <laughs> um, anything else before we move on? Got a lot of things in the news folder today. No, no, sad story. Yeah. But we can I'm sure on. we'll hear we'll hear more about the investigate as the investigation proceeds. Um, an update on the uh, ATR seventy two crash in Iran on March eleventh. Iran's AIB, their Accident Investigation Board, released their preliminary report in Persian. So I'm going to read it in Persian. So bear with. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Reporting that the according to the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, the aircraft had been handed over to Yasuj Tower. The autopilot was set to 15,000 feet. Descending through 15,600 feet, the crew activated the anti-ice systems. The aircraft leveled off at 15,000 feet on the autopilot. The crew set the QNH to 1021 millibars and maintained 15,000 feet for about one minute. Then the engines were reduced to idle. The speed reduced to 200 knots with the angle of attack increasing. The engines uh, slightly accelerated. The speed continued to decrease and reached 129 knots indicated. The minimum maneuvering speed here is 132. The pitch reaches 15 degrees nose up. The engines accelerate to 67% torque. The altitude target is set to 14,000 feet, and the aircraft begins to descend at about 600 feet per minute. The speed further reduces to 117 knots. A stall warning activates. The crew disengages the autopilot. The aircraft rolls 20 degrees to the left. The pitch reduces to about 9 degrees nose down, descending through 14,200 feet at 137 knots indicated. The autopilot gets re-engaged. The aircraft rolls right by 12 degrees. The pitch increases to 5 degrees nose down. A GPWS warning terrain ahead pull up activates. The autopilot's disengaged. The GPWS warning continues for 12 seconds until impact. Uh, The AIB continued that there was no technical malfunction of the aircraft. The engines operated in accordance to pilot inputs. All aircraft systems supplied the crew with valid data. The AIB stated that the crew should have maintained 17,000 feet in accordance with the flight plan and the approach procedure. However, they descended the aircraft to 15,000 feet, inexplicably, I guess, followed by a target altitude of 14,000 feet on the autopilot, contrary to flight rules. In addition, while the crew was permitted to conduct the flight with the weather data available at the time of departure, the latest weather information provided by Yasuj Tower indicates clouds up to 15,000 feet, and that prohibited the approach to Yasuj according to company procedures due to cloud cover present at the aerodrome. The crew should have diverted to Shiraz or uh, Isfahan planned as alternate aerodromes. So... Wow, it looks to me here like for some reason they were disoriented and uh, decided to set uh, a lower altitude than they should have at that point. Again, I think the 17,000 feet was the minimum altitude that they were required to fly on that segment of this approach uh, over the high terrain. 
but uh, so that now they're down at 15,000 feet. So very little uh, clearance between the airplane and the terrain. And not to mention the fact that it looks like they were distracted and allowed the airplane to get into a, a very, very dangerous state uh, at a very slow airspeed, very high angle of attack. And instead of disconnecting everything and, and hand flying the thing and recovering from it, uh, <laughs> instead it looks like they tried to turn the autopilot back on after the autopilot uh, clicked off. So I don't know. It's very strange. Well, it, it does say they disengaged the autopilot. Oh. Uh, and then they then put it back on again. But, um, yeah, why on earth would you want to get that speed so low? I'm just completely confused about that, Jeff. Uh, would you think they were trying to do their own kind of uh, homemade approach here? Because uh, it, it's just this is inexplicable their their uh, actions and they got the aircraft into i really don't understand yeah i think you might be right that they're thinking well maybe if we just go down a little bit lower we'll get below this cloud deck and we'll be able to see everything not yeah. uh they just weren't aware of the terrain yeah for whatever oh, yeah. reason 12 seconds of it's, it's not as humor granite yeah yep yeah but yeah i don't understand how they managed to get so slow too that doesn't make any sense at all or why they allowed that to happen you know what this looks like i, I mean it we, loss of control um is a is a big deal and it has been now for the last decade or two and before that a controlled flight in terrain was a big problem and this appears to be both maybe not controlled yeah. flight into terrain <laughs> no um yeah i don't know mostly loss well, of control. initially controlled because they deliberately descended their plane I can't believe they didn't deliberately slow it up because that's a hell of a speed reduction Yeah, from 200 uh, knots back to 129. Uh, and then even a little slower. Um, yeah. These are speeds that, you know, uh, if they were fully configured for landing, maybe these speeds would have been appropriate, but not yeah. in their current configuration. But then to completely ignore 12 seconds of terrain ahead, pull up and GPWS warnings, uh, that is just, unforgivable yeah yeah and there's no i mean surely there's going to be some more information because this is just a preliminary report and hopefully they'll have more insight as to what was actually going on you know at that time from cvr data and all that but mm, i hope so yeah hopefully that provides some more insight and i think we had talked about on an earlier show that you know i wonder how transparent and how much information we're going to get from Iran's accident investigation board. And I'm mm -hmm. pleasantly surprised that we're getting as much as we're getting right now. Yep. Likewise. All right. Well, this one is, this is a hard one to do this next item um, regarding pets on airplanes. And we'll start with the sad one first. Um, let's see. According to a passenger on United flight, 1284 from Houston Intercontinental to New York's LaGuardia. A passenger boarded the flight with a TSA compliant pet carrier with a small dog inside. It was a little cute little 10 month old um, bulldog puppy. For unknown reasons, the flight attendant insisted that the passenger stow the carrier with the dog inside in an overhead bin for the duration of the flight. The passengers reported hearing barking for part of the flight. I think approximately two hours. By the end of the trip, horrified passengers found the dog had died in flight. United responded 
uh, to this story. Uh, they provided a statement. This was a tragic accident that should never have occurred, as pets should never be placed in the overhead bin. We assume full responsibility for this tragedy and express our deepest condolences to the family and are committed to supporting them. We are thoroughly investigating what occurred to prevent this from ever happening again. And in United's website policy on pets in the cabin, it says a pet traveling in a cabin must be carried in an approved hard-sided or soft-sided kennel. The kennel must fit completely under the seat in front of the customer and remain there at all times. So clearly this was not following the policy. Um, anyway. I mean, there's some, some other issues with this too that I'm going to bring up just for people who may not know about some of these dog breeds. So this was a bulldog, correct? Mm -hmm. And Nick may know more here than I do even, but um, these types of dogs are brachycephalic dogs, which means that they have a very short nose and they can sometimes have um, breathing problems, respiratory problems. And I think in general, the recommendation is that these dogs really shouldn't be on aircraft in the first place. They shouldn't, they're not the greatest dogs to travel with um, when flying, just because that can exacerbate some of their breathing problems. And then you can imagine in this case where that may have been just exponentially exacerbated because of where the dog was placed. So um, if you have a dog that has a very short nose, bulldogs, pugs, things like that, um, probably in the best interest of your dog to find alternative transportation means whenever possible. Yeah, you're quite right, Steph. Uh, they were bred this way to mm -hmm. enable them to bite and hang on to whatever animals they were baiting. So uh, the idea was to breed them with a short nose so that they could grip and the um, the act of holding on to whatever it was, a bear or a bull or another dog uh, in the olden days uh, wouldn't interrupt their ability to breathe through their nose. So they bred them with the short nose for this reason. No reason why they should be bred like that nowadays. However, the breed standard continues. And if you have one of these uh, dogs, then they will suffer from these problems. They'll suffer from an overbite and they'll also suffer from excess um, uh material in their throats. They often have to have operations to clear their airways uh, just as a natural course of uh, in, in their life because um, that's you know that's what they bred into the into the type of dog. So you've got to be very careful with them when you're in a situation like this. Uh, I'm, I'm just so sad that the flight attendant uh, made such a fuss incorrectly and we know the fact that flight tenants have to deal with a lot of bad situations. So they're quite likely sometimes to say, well, if you don't well, I say, you'll have to get off the aeroplane. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel so awful I'm trying to do the best to, you know, get their flight achieved. And uh, one um, poorly trained cabin crew member uh, created this entire incident. Apparently, allegedly, you know, we don't know the full story, but uh, it sure. sounds some, you know, confusing uh, some aspects of this, whether or not the well, flight attendant uh, put uh, it United up there or the, if, uh, or if yeah, the United have put their hands up and they say uh, that they, um, they, what was there, uh, should never have occurred, pet should never be placed in there. We assume full responsibility. Yeah. So I'm assuming that United have a, agreed that basically that's they what occurred. Wrong, but yeah. you're, you're quite right, Jeff. Mm -hmm. it, it may not, it may be something. Uh, first Officer that. Mike in the chat room is asking, you know, was this one of those emotional support animals? And ironically, if it had been an emotional support animal or one so-called, 
um, this would have had a happy outcome because I believe it wouldn't have been required to be in a kennel and stored in an overhead bin or beneath the seat in front of them. Uh, it could have been out um, in the lap yeah. of the passenger. All right. So finally, I, I can actually add to this in that is number one, I'm, I'm a dog lover, just like everybody on the show. I mean, uh, I miss my baby beyond belief. Um, however, you know, we don't, we're only getting one side of the story on this. There's always another side to the story and, uh, but who knows? Yeah. But Nick made a good point there though, that, uh, United did immediately uh, or very quickly say, uh, yeah, we screwed up. We take full responsibility. And I, and I, and I know that and I understand that, but that might be in retribution for the earlier event that they had, which, was you know the, pulling the passenger off the aircraft? I'm not going to use any names or airlines in that one, but uh, you know they they came under a lot of fire, so they're they're obviously taking responsibility because for a PA, from a PR standpoint, I think it's uh, better that they do that as quickly as possible. So I agree with that, mm-hmm. but we're not getting the full. I, there's some some part of this. I, I I'm and I'm just playing devil's advocate because mm-hmm. I am a dog lover, and certainly a dog should not be up in that you know in in an overhead compartment because obviously it suffocated death because you know once carbon monoxide built up that was the end um yeah. and it's terrible terrible i'm just i'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit on that one okay mr devil we're only getting yeah mr devil that's me <laughs> <laughs> well i like to play devil's advocate because i like people to think about you know you know that's that's just me i like yeah. to think about all the all the all the different scenarios here so yeah this was united we can say you know the airline because we don't fly for this airline so airline names no, are for Acme. perfectly fine to use uh so it's a good thing that uh, united didn't have any other troubles with pets this past week nope not one mm-hmm. oh wait a minute hang on wait the swindle family was all smiles as they reunited with their dog ergo at the wichita airport last night Daddy. you want to hold Okay, there you go. The 10-year-old German Shepherd arrived after an unplanned cross-Pacific flight to Japan. It feels absolutely amazing to finally have him back. It's been a long four days. Kara Swindle and her family are relocating to Kansas from the West Coast. But when they went to pick up Ergo from the Kansas City Airport on Tuesday, United Airlines gave them a different family's dog instead. I walked over to the kennel and I called his name. And up popped this Great Dane instead of my German Shepherd. And it was just instant tears because this wasn't my dog. That was not my dog. And I had no idea where my dog was. It has been the absolute worst nightmare. United transported more than 130,000 animals last year. 18 of those died and 13 were injured. A much higher rate than any other airline. United has apologized for the mistake and flew Ergo back on a private jet. But Kara says it's not enough. I hope they somehow put into some policy that this never happens again, just so we can make sure that nobody ever goes through this again. Because what I have felt the last couple days, I don't want any other dog owner to ever feel again. Not knowing where your beloved pet is, it really is a nightmare. As for the Great Dane Lincoln, he arrived back in Japan yesterday. United Airlines is still investigating how the mix-up happened and have not released any new information. They say the dogs were switched during their connection in Denver. Kara says that if they travel with Ergo again, it's going to be on a boat, not a plane. 
Oh boy. <laughs> it's hard to get a boat to Kansas though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't think it through stuff. From the West Coast. <laughs> not aware of the waterway. The waterway has not been built yet. The, uh, well, it, you know, actually you can because you go down the West Coast, you go through the Panama Canal, come up the Mississippi River, join up with the I think it's the Missouri River and then Is that into into Kansas. In, into Kansas. Yeah. yeah. So there yeah. you go. Because that's a more pleasant trip for your dog. Yeah. That'll only take pleasant. a couple of weeks. So, yeah. so can can I say the obvious here? Yes, you can lock Please. you can lock your wife up in the closet for three or four hours or three or four days. You can lock your dog up in the closet for three or four hours or three or four days, and I'll guarantee you what: the dog will always be very happy to see you, not the wife. <laughs> Okay. Well, that was uh, some some words of wisdom there from uh, Dana. That's uh, Dana at AirlinePilotGuy.com. There's, um, there's hardly any difference between a Great Dane and a German Shepherd. I mean, I very similar. Can, I, I, very really, I really understood how they made the difference. I well, mean, you know, they were like Dane's big, big dog, size. bigger dog. What I wonder is, yeah, uh, why do we didn't and, uh, hear, usually, we didn't hear anything about Lincoln? Uh, we only yeah, we Ergo. Did, they, sent to, they sent Lincoln back to Japan. Yeah, where yeah. Lincoln was supposed to be going. So. I mean, all they had to ask the dog was, "Where, where do you live?" Uh, and that would have been easy. They would assess that. Yeah, true. Did you like my little uh, little clip in that Very I put good. in there? Yes. <laughs> this is not my dog. <laughs> Does your dog obey? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you, you know, you know what I find amazing about this story is how many how many intercompany miners have gotten lost. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. But so they far, make a much bigger deal out of the dog because everybody loves the dog unconditionally. They love us unconditionally. True. The kids, who cares, right? Yeah, at least no kids have died yet. We know of anyway. we know of. No human trafficking or anything. Oh, uh, well, there's so. there's two of those uh, pet uh, screw-ups at United this week. Thank goodness the week didn't have any. Oh, wait. Hang on. And United Airlines apologizing tonight after a third incident this week involving a pet on a plane. A flight from Newark to St. Louis diverted to Akron after they realized a pet had been mistakenly loaded onto the plane. Earlier this week, another dog died during a flight in an overhead bin, and this German shepherd, Ergo, was put on a plane to Japan instead of Kansas City, flown back on a corporate jet and reunited with his family. They say they will likely sue the airline. All right. Uh, Good week Third for time United. to charm, I guess. Good <laughs> Yeah. Oh, dear. So, yeah, not a good week for uh, pets at United Airlines. I would imagine some people are going to. Uh, Do they understand about barcode readers, you know? And, yeah, or maybe even like RFID scans. RFID, and yeah. Yeah. yeah, all that, all that stuff. Uh, I mean, that's commonplace technology now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It makes life exactly. a lot simpler. And- <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to probably emphasize that now after all this bad PR. Oh man. All right. Um, enough dog stuff, by the way. Um, they actually chartered a private jet to send Ergo back from Japan to Kansas city. That must've cost a huge amount of money. It costs- well, I have to ask a pilot Pip. According to this article, it says, uh, the average cost for a flight like that is more than $90,000. Yeah, I think I saw ninety thousand dollars quoted. Yeah. So, but and then I love the uh, clip from the family at the end, or that last one. They said the family was going to sue United anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you got the dog back. He came back on it. I mean, I understand that you were you know, went through all this money emotional this, baby. Tur- turmoil, but yeah. you know, this was a 
that one fortunately was the all's well that ends well, mm-hmm. even though there was a big screw up. That's true. So, that's true. That I don't understand as much, but that's just me. So. All right. Well, switching from pets back to airplane crashes, unfortunately, uh, let's play a little bit of this audio. This happened in uh, Kathmandu, Nepal. I'll start to one one. Can you reduce your speed further? As it descent to one two thousand five hundred feet, uh, reduce your speed to minimum clean. Descent to one two thousand five hundred and reduce speed to minimum clean. Descent to one one. Descent to one one. Confirm holding over, Gura. Thank you, sir. We are proceeding. Let's continue, continue approach. Continue approach. Continue approach. Bangladesh two one one. Katmandar, Bangladesh 211, final round, way 02. Bangladesh 211, tower, wind 23 degrees 8 knots, tailing component 7 knots, on the 02, continue approach. Continue approach, Bangladesh 211. Bangladesh 211, wind 220 degrees 7 knots, tailing component 6 knots, on the 02, clear to land. Clear to land, Bangladesh 211. Bangladesh 211, tower. Go ahead, man. Go ahead, man. Bangladesh 211, uh, you are given landing clearance to runway 02. You are going towards runway 20. Sorry for the uh, bad audio here, but uh, that's the best we have to work with. Go ahead. Malasar 211 and uh, Bangladesh 212 traffic uh, final uh, at uh, runway 02 at 2 miles, a feasible report sighting. Copy sir, we'll be approaching runway 02. Confirm you are tracking towards runway 20. Join left, right, downwind runway 02. I say in Bangladesh 212 traffic is on final runway 02, landing for runway 02. Copy sir. Advice, Buddha 282. Buddha 282, go ahead. Confirm clear to land, runway 02. Buddha 282, FM, runway 02, clear to land. 02, clear to land, Buddha 282. Alastar 211, I say again, do not proceed towards runway 20. Clear to hold at your position. Okay, we are making an orbit to the right. Copy it. Tower 1211, making a right hold wind, right holding for runway 02. Okay, that's good, but do not land. Traffic is on short final runway 02. We know that, sir. Copy it. Let us know once we have get left. Yeah, Thank you, sir. Uh, Bangladesh 211, runway is uh, cleared land and uh, runway is vacated either runway 02 or 20. Confirm you need a vector? Uh, sir, we would like to land on 20. Okay, runway 20 cleared land with uh, 270 degrees 6 knots. 260. Copy, 
Affirmative, we have answers on my side, requesting clear to land, sir. Bangladesh, sir, 211, clear to land. Clear to land, runway 02, Bangladesh, sir, 212. Roger, runway 02, clear to land, Bangladesh, sir, 211. Go ahead. Uh, sir, someone copy. Uh, RV-53, due traffic, uh, Bangladesh, sir, 211, uh, circling runway 20, is right now. Uh, final for runway two zero. Initially, can you hold at present position? Alright, sir, we go. Roger, Army five three. Copy to nine Lima Tango. Uh, Army five three is holding at one zero miles. Alright, sir. Nine Lima Tango, hold at present position. Main side, sir. Are we clear to land? Bangladesh two one one. I say again. Done. Master, back, uh, Simic 154, clear to hold beyond 155. Uh, copy, sir, holding beyond 155. Uh, RB53, Lima Tango, report position. Uh, report Lima Tango, report position. Uh, okay, remain clear of Lima Tango and clear to hold at uh, Thousand uh, Nalima Tango also holding at five thousand, R five three also holding at five thousand. Confirm. Yeah. Fire 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 Okay, again, kind of a, a jumble of uh, radio communications there and not very clear. Uh, but basically wanted to play that because I, I just wanted you to, to kind of understand how uh, there was a lot of confusion here uh, with uh, runway 02, runway 20. Uh, this, let me set this up and give you some context for what happened here. It was a U.S. Bangla uh, de Havilland-8400. Uh, registration Sierra 2 Alpha Golf Uniform, Flight 211 or 211 from Bangladesh to Kathmandu, Nepal with 67 passengers and four crew. And they were coming into land. Uh, they were on a procedure, a VOR procedure uh, to bring them in uh, through the high terrain uh, into the airport area for uh, um, landing on runway two. Um, but it's also used that same procedure to circle, uh, do a visual maneuver to circle to the opposite end of the runway. And appears that, uh, there was some confusion as to what the intentions were of this flight that crashed, um, you know, whether they were planning on landing on runway zero two or two zero, it sounds like there was a lot of confusion regarding that. And it also, uh, based on what witnesses saw uh, and uh, uh, tracks of the flight, uh, looks like they may have actually uh, lost sight of the runway at one point in that uh, audio. He said, you know, confirm you have the runway in sight. And he said, no. And I'm thinking, well, this is a visual maneuver here. This is not an instrument approach at this point because you've gotten down toward the airport and now he can't see the runway to which he's been assigned landing clearance. And some people are uh, surmising that perhaps 
they were looking at a diagonal runway, which I'm not even sure is open anymore. It's a much shorter runway. Um, I think 11 to nine. And they're thinking that maybe because of the weather conditions and cumulonimbus uh, clouds here and there that uh, they saw a, a, a brief glimpse of that runway and thought that that was runway uh, 02 that they were given clearance to land on. And it turns out that, you know, we now know that that was not the correct runway. Again, that's that's just um, supposition uh, that that may so, have happened. Pet peeve of mine, and you guys tell me what you think about this, especially in the context of runway 220, using 02 to identify the runway. Um, because in that case, you're saying both of those numbers and it just become, in my mind, it becomes even more confusing. I mean, I never or very rarely hear people say, you know, runway 05 or 04. It's always in the context of a 220 runway. I think people do it because they think it's making it clearer. You know, if I put the zero before the two, then you'll understand that I'm not telling you two zero, but you're adding back in that same number. And sometimes it, you can hear how, how confusing it gets there because it's just two zero zero two zero two zero. It's like, well, which one did you mean? Which one did you want? Right. Even if English is your native language, it's still confusing, but can now compound that with this is not your yep. native language. And I've seen this personally because one of the airports that I used to fly into regularly when I was doing my initial private pilot training and flying for probably a good 100, hour, 100 hours after that does have, as the main runway is 220, and it's an uncontrolled airport. And on days when there's not a lot of wind and you know pilots out there are making their own choices as to which uh, runway to select and use, I've seen that same confusion because people say 0220 and they're reading it back wrong to each other, but they're not catching it because they think they know what they're hearing in their mind. Um, so it's it's a big pet peeve of mine for that. Would that be... Ooh, pet I'm sorry. I'll try that again. Ooh, just, just pet peeve. <laughs> yes, that, that is my pet peeve. One of my pet peeves. So... Um, yeah, in fact, I think I'm just curious to know what you guys think about that. But I mean, you can hear it very clearly there. I've seen it in the context of an uncontrolled airport where um, uh, people are making their own selection as to which runway to use and confusing themselves in the process as well. So um, and I think that I was reading in some of the commentary on this. So this is from the Aviation Herald that uh, in some countries they've actually uh, banned you know, using numbers like this, they'll actually make this, uh, runway, uh, 20. Yeah. Well, no, I that's mean, not even two two zero. They use different numbers, like different numbers, even though magnetically, that that's, you know, that'd yeah. be more. Cause that's yeah. the only place where it happens, you know, is with that, that magnetic heading, any other combination you don't have. One, three, three, one is the other. Well, one. that's true. Yeah. One, three, three, one is the other one. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, although I think, I think the IKEA standard is to use, uh, digits rather than call it runway two um the only problem with using two step i would say is if you clipped a transmission you're trying to say uh two zero and you let go of the transmit button a tad early or yep. someone treads on you then you can cut off that zero and it sounds just like runway two, two. exactly so there is a confusion there um i, I in the in europe and in the uh, uk military we always use the two digits so we said zero nine or one nine or okay whatever uh, having said that i don't think it's a bad idea because even though i grew up doing it that way i also grew up saying um call sign one two three instead of one twenty three and 
I actually much prefer and find it easier to pick out my call sign when people aren't reading our individual digits and doing the way they do in the States, which is to group them together, as you would say, a number 23 or 55 or or treble one or whatever and use a colloquial um, version of your call sign rather than just reading out the digits. Um, it has its place. I don't know if it's entirely correct for, say, just runways, but uh, right. yeah, I prefer the uh, the way of moving <laughs> moving your runway <laughs> by ten degrees <laughs> to make the numbers uh, more sensible. Even they physically haven't moved it, you you call it a right. <laughs> and it, slightly it, different number. And we have examples yeah. of that right now in Atlanta. All the runways right. exactly have, I mean, have the same exact headings, two hundred and seventy five degrees, but we have runway. Two seven um, left and two seven right, and we have two six left and two six right, but they're exactly parallel. Also two eight on the south end, mm -hmm. and so technically they should all be runway two seven, you know, and, A B C D right. E F. <laughs> but to keep from being confused about it, they said, you know, let's make these two six, make the the center two two seven, and the southernmost two eight. Mm -hmm. So you know that we have examples of them doing something like this. Um, but look at you know, that, and, um, in the show notes, I don't know if you see that, uh, that, uh, Google earth, uh, picture there where they, yes. they were holding to the Northwest of the air aerodrome when they were trying to get everything all sorted out because the airplane coming in behind them was landing on zero two. So they told them to just hold up there near a Capon or a Capen. And then they were proceeding to, to circle to runway, uh, zero two again. And I think that. They may have looked, the captain may have looked out the window and saw that other short runway, 1129. You know, it sounds to me like it wasn't a clear and unlimited kind of a picture that they were getting. They were getting maybe glimpses of runway through breaks in the clouds. And apparently, uh, I mean, some people have surmised, as I said, that uh, they may have looked at that short little runway, not realizing that it was not the correct orientation. And, uh, I think you, you, you might have hit on something there, Jeff, but this comes down to, again, that poor lady who was, we assume, was a bit maxed out with all her runway changes trying to get into the American airfield. We covered it uh, a yes. month or so ago. Houston. Houston. Yeah, yeah it, uh, I couldn't remember the details. Um, the, the most important thing for the captain to do is fly the bloody airplane um, all the time. Um, and it's the, whenever you get into a situation, the first thing you, you say is, fly the airplane, and then deal with the other problems. Um, and it's just so sad that some people allow w what is happening around them to distract them so much that they stop flying the airplane. Um, and this guy was an experienced uh, military guy who had been to Kathmandu 100 times. So, damn it, it was as close to being his home base almost as any of us would have. He should have known that place like the back of his hand, you'd have thought, mm -hmm. wouldn't you? Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, just that um, situational awareness, uh, task saturation, confusion with a lot of things you know, going on on the radio, and it, like you said, forget to... I don't know, fly the airplane. Yeah. Forget your number one job. Yeah. It's a very demanding place to fly. I think there are special qualifications and everything else. But as you mentioned, it's not like the first time he's been here. So no. No. No, it's it's at an amazing elevation. It's got high ground all around it. I mean, it's a terrible and it's a 
place renowned for uh, accidents because of all those factors. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this doesn't sound like it was. Hello. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh, he's there. Back. He is. You're unfrozen. So uh, we we heard up to. It sounds like. Oh, uh, sorry. Did you miss that bit? Yes. I said it sounds just like, as Steph said, someone becoming tasked, saturated, and flying himself into the ground. Yep. Mm -hmm. It certainly does, Ali. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll learn more about that terrible crash uh, later on. Moving on. Um, this one, F, accident. Smart Links A320 at Tallinn on February 28th, 2018. Runway excursion. Uh, Smart Links Estonia Airbus A320-200 registration Echo Sierra Sierra Alpha November performing training flights from Tallinn to Tallinn, Estonia. So they're just staying right there at that airport. Seven crew. I believe there were uh, four students, a training captain, and I believe somebody from the Estonian... Uh, let's see, I'm trying to find that part of the article. Who else was a civil aviation inspector? Uh, from Estonia, were the crew on board? They were practicing touch and goes, and after about a dozen touch and goes, the aircraft touched down on runway eight, accelerated again, lifted off but could not climb, uh, could not climb out, touching down again very hard, with sparks and flames visible, and became airborne again. The transponder obviously failed upon the hard touchdown. The crew declared an emergency position for a landing and touchdown on runway 26. Uh, when a loud bang was heard and the aircraft veered left off the runway, leaving some parts behind on the runway and came to a stop at position blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm not going to give that. Um, let's see, 830 meters, 2,700 feet past the runway 26 threshold. Two occupants received minor injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. Uh, according to the uh, to information, the Aviation Herald received the last touch and go went wrong with the aircraft hitting the runway second time a second time very hard. The aircraft had the nose gear rotated by 90 degrees and sustained damage to nose gear and both engines. Uh, let's see. Uh, apparently, you can, there are some pictures here in. The article from the Aviation Herald showing the damage to the airplane and uh, significant damage to uh, the main landing gear, nose gear. Uh, looks like the uh, the rat uh, deployed, <laughs> probably not intentionally. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, there's a big gash in the uh, I mean, they hit down so hard that apparently the engine split cowlings the hit the runway. <laughs> wow. On a 320. That's something, large. you know? Yep. Jeez. Uh, there was also a video that uh, you can look at and um, you can kind of see the very end and rollout of the last uh, bit of this whole uh, incident. And Can we stop calling it a landing? I don't think it was a landing anymore. Yeah, it was a controlled was a crash. crash, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was some, uh, some conversation in the comments about, you know, like the control priority of the side stick controller and perhaps something like that was involved here where somebody thought they had control or maybe the cap the training captain took control and uh with the override to press the button yeah when, uh, when you take control you press an override button that cuts out the other guy's stick so if you don't uh the aircraft sums the input so if 
pilot it has full back and the other has full forward, it'll sum those inputs and the airplane will fly straight and level. So and if you want to take control, you've got to press that red button and it cuts the other pilot's stick out and then you have full authority. Now, to be, you know, to be fair, this was a training flight. So perhaps the person flying the airplane at the time, you know, wasn't and didn't have much experience and, you know, came at it, uh, set it up improperly. And perhaps the training captain was attempting to take control and prevent this from occurring. But as Captain Nick said, perhaps he uh, didn't do it properly. I don't know. But yeah, I yeah. don't think we have any of that information. Not yet. As of yet, we just know yeah. the outcome. So yeah, that's, that's pretty wrecked airplane, though, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't look good. Not good at all. But as a lot of people would say, if you can walk away from it, I don't know if they can use the airplane again. But uh, <laughs> well, so it's only a good landing, good landing not, not a great, great landing. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another sad piece of news here: um, the uh, it was an Emirates triple seven three hundred. And uh, they were uh, departing from, or they were uh, planning on departing from Entebbe, Uganda, to Dubai, United Arab Emirates. They were parked at the gate, was uh, being prepared for boarding when a flight attendant opened one of the aft doors for unknown reasons and fell out of the aircraft, landing on the concrete surface of the apron. The flight attendant received serious injuries and was taken to a hospital in critical condition. And I believe the update on this is that the uh, flight attendant uh, died from her injuries. Um, Let's see. Uganda's Civil Aviation Authority reported an incident happened at Entebbe uh, when a female flight attendant appeared to have opened an emergency exit and unfortunately fell off the aircraft while the aircraft was parked. Uh, One of the comments in the Aviation Herald article uh, by Diego said uh, the wind at the time of this, uh, 180 at 12, while the aircraft parks with a heading of 080, 12 knots is not much of a strong wind, but it's enough to complicate things a little. When opening a 777 door, you have to push it outwards, and then the door goes forward until it locks, but you may need to let your body out of the aircraft to push the door to the correct position. If you need to close it, the door will unlock from its open position by pulling a lever, but in certain wind conditions, the weight of the door locks this lever, and you may have to reach out to push the door a little to release the lever. If you consider that to open or close the door, there is no safety restraint yet in position. The female flight attendant shoes are not the most appropriate to perform this kind of task. You get that the risk involved may be uh, not acceptable by current safety standards. So... Now, I don't know anything about the 777 doors. I thought they were all the kind of doors that kind of automatically, electronically uh, moved upwards into the fuselage. But I didn't know that there were uh, manual doors like that. Well, I don't know because, uh, you know, the the actual article in the Aviation Herald says that she was opening the door. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why Maybe she they'd be opening the door stumbled. at that point. Or somebody else yeah. said that perhaps uh, she... Well, it no, was intentional. Well, there were some 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 thought about thought that. About that as I, well. I don't know if we know any of the actual reasons behind why this happened, but yeah, either way, just more sad. sad news. Yeah. Well, yeah, I must admit, um, not realizing this was going to be on the news, so I was chatting to this uh, about this on the aircraft coming out and the Galley FM, which is uh, what we call Galley Rumor, um, was that uh, uh, it was a suicide. Um, 
and that she went out of the door with a bottle of um, a glass bottle of spirits held under her neck, under her head. Now, mm. whether that's correct or not, I don't know. Why? But, uh, why would she do that if it was a suicide attempt? What's the point of? D- don't know. Don't know. I was almost thinking to myself, if you like, you're trying to do something with the door, and you have this bottle of spirits in your hand, and you're thinking, well, what the heck am I going to do with this? I need both of my hands. I'm going to put it under my neck, and really push hard to get this thing open, and all of a sudden, whoop, and falling out. Yep. I, I, yep. I don't know. It seems to me more of an accident than a suicide, but it, it might well be. Yeah. It might well be. So I I, I'm, I'm just saying what the, yeah, uh, the, I'd, I'd the that. rumor is that's going around. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's a hell of a long way down, yeah. And it wouldn't be the first time that someone's been severely injured or killed doing exactly that. Sadly, not. And finally, this uh, last item in the news folder. I do apologize for all the news this week, but heck, we report. It's good news. You decide, right? yeah. Um, well, yeah, we've had you know news weeks where there was nothing, <laughs> so uh, we're we're gonna uh, skew it toward the making up for emphasis it. on the news this week. Um, this is an interesting one. A Nimbus, interesting name for an air, airline, a Nimbus AN-12, an Antonov AN-12, registration Romeo Alpha 11130, performing a freight flight from Yakutsk to Krasnoyarsk. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. God bless you. Oh, yes, thank you. In Russia, carrying a cargo of 9,000 kilograms, I'm sorry, 9,000 kilograms of gold ingots suffered a shift of its cargo upon departure from Yakutsk, causing about 3,400 kilograms of the cargo to break through the fuselage and become distributed over the runway. The aircraft managed to climb out. Several airframe panels separated in flight and dropped into a local car park, and the aircraft diverted to Magan, about six nautical miles west of Yakutsk, for a safe landing. There were no injuries. Surprised nobody got hit by one of those gold ingots. Uh, there are several pictures here in the article if you want to check them out in the show notes, and you can see the runway is just uh, just scattered with all littered. the yeah littered there. That's the best word with uh, gold littered with gold. Um, <laughs> salvage rights. I claim salvage rights. <laughs> yeah, so this exactly. airplane, you know, it's, it's not a brand new airplane. Looks kind of old, um, and it's a high wing turboprop. Um, and some, uh, someone made a comment in the, in the, um, article here. Um, it's real fortunate that the, that the structure was unable to hold that displaced cargo. Otherwise it could easily have resulted in a way to aft CG and crash. So I kind of agree with them. I mean, it's, it's yeah. bad that it kind of made a hole in the airplane and all fell out. But if this is, you know, a shift in cargo, it could have gone the, the route of that national 747 off of uh, Bagram, uh, Bagram in uh, 2013, about mm-hmm. April of 2013, I think is when, or 2014. Anyway, it's been, I, I can't believe it's been that long already, but uh, when they had the shift of cargo and they ended up uh, having the AFCG and they couldn't fly out of it and crashed. So what do you think about this one? Uh, it's a rich story. <laughs> uh, I reckon it's a, um, it's a, was an attempt to steal the gold. I think it was very clever, but they just didn't. Uh, they didn't execute enough. properly. Yeah, they didn't put enough. It, I mean, they, the, obviously the team waiting to pick up the gold were just off the edge of the airfield. That was the place they were supposed to drop it. In the but, car park, uh, right? 
Yeah, in the car park. So. Directly into the waiting vehicle. Just yeah. Like a big <laughs> dump, dump truck waiting nine, for it. Nine tons of gold. Boom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Very interesting story. I, I love the picture of the two guys standing, standing sticking there. their head up through the yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it just goes to show this airplane. I mean, it may have had a corroded uh, um, bottom to the cargo hull, but uh, it just goes to show how the rest of the airplane was pretty strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, as that commenter said, it's kind of fortunate, I guess, in this case, that it did actually break through those panels and drop out. Yeah. I wonder how much nine tons of solid gold, pure gold, is worth. Well, it says here. A lot. Um, plane loses its $368 million cargo of gold, platinum, and diamonds. They really don't say anything about the diamonds. I would imagine that would have been difficult to find all those. In the snow and everything else? Yeah. 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 I wonder if they x-rayed the captain. (laughs) Perhaps. What are you hiding? (laughs) All right. Well, with that, that's the end of our news segment. A long one today. And let's move on to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okay, starting with Ivor. We've held this piece of feedback for quite some time, and we're finally going to get to it. And I see that Ivor is in the chat room. That's great. Okay, let's start off by... uh, Reading this. Dear Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. Oh, it's only addressed to the two captains here. I must raise the subject. I'll leave. (laughs) No, you need to stay because uh, it's going to be addressed here. I must raise the subject of loyalty within the APG crew. I would normally use the good offices of HR for this matter, but I fear that the normally blameless HR department may have transgressed aviation protocol. I must also bring similar claims against the BBQ King, the Barbecue King. May I check that this is still a mainly aviation show with the odd mention of beer and food? All perfectly fine and normal, but two of our key members seem to be having some sort of transportation conflict. Who was it that gave the okay to Dr. Steph to go on a boating holiday this is very disappointing to say the least what's wrong with airplanes what's worse is that the boat is not just a poor means of transportation but it turns out to be the main holiday also good heavens what's the world coming to but worse is to come another host who we shall just call dana is not only holidaying on these floating contraptions more than once i believe but 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 calm yourself, Ivor, is buying one of the evil devices. This is surely, don't call me surely, a step too far. Back on the subject of Admiral Plummer, does she not live by a body of water? The plot thickens. I will leave space here for you to admonish the secret sailors in our midst. Okay, so I'm admonishing the two of you. Your activities on this form of transportation is just unacceptable. So I watched well, yeah. some float planes yeah. from unless the deck. It, no, unless it's an aircraft carrier, you're not allowed to play on a boat. All right, so this is what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to ride my motorcycle. 
to the airport, get in my float plane, fly to the lake, land on the lake, and then get on my boat. Does that work? I don't know. You have to ask Ivor. I think he's still. Yeah, I hope I, that I works, Ivor. He's still pretty uh, upset about this. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so he goes on. Uh, you know what? I, I think that he is just kidding. Uh, anyway, can I thank Captain Jeff for a lovely day out? Let's see. Anyway, can I thank Captain Jeff for a lovely day out? Mrs. Ivor and I had on our recent holiday. We visit Los Angeles very regularly, but it had but had never considered going to Catalina Island before. But you said how much you enjoyed it in your younger, more carefree days. So we took your advice and took ourselves to the lovely Catalina. And you were so right, so much so that we went a second time. The first day was slightly blighted by the presence of a large cruise ship boat thing. There was another bit of unpleasantness. We had to get a boat to Catalina Catalina and back. I want you to treat this as a confession. We didn't enjoy it and we won't do it again, hoping you can forgive us and we will never speak of it again. <laughs> Anchors away, Ivor McDonald. Yay. <laughs> Great piece of feedback, Ivor. Um, so, Ivor, you'll be, you'll be happy to note that I don't have another um, boating holiday excursion planned for uh, the rest of this year. I don't think... There may be the same one again in 2019. Yeah, but Dana can't say the same. Being that... No, I can't. <laughs> he's going to be doing really, a lot I of really boating can't. activity. Well, it's going and, 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 oh, by the way, not that this is the proper form, but... Um, I'm trying to figure out a name for the boat. So if anybody has any really Boston oriented type of names that they could suggest, that would be fantastic. But yes, I plan on being the boat on the boat as well as we will be having an APG meetup in Atlanta on the boat because I can hold 16 people. So we can, uh, we can go out in the lake and have a very good time. Oh, nice. It has to do so. something with the tea party. I would think some kind of an, I, I did come up with Boston, Boston, B-A-U-S-T-I-N, tea party, P-A-H-T-Y. Tea party. But, party. but everybody says it's, it's just too long. Hmm. So the other one I came up with is wicked because Boston is synonymous with that word wicked. Wicked tuna. So it's going to be an ala tuna and I'm a pontoon, right? So tuna, T-O-O-N-A-H. Tuna. tuna. Wicked tuna. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like it too. Boston so is associated with tuna? I've never heard that. Or wicked? Never heard that. Wicked. What? Wicked. Have Wicked you ever listened is... to anyone from Boston? Oh. Every, instead of the Wicked. word awesome, which we get accused of as using a lot as Americans, Wicked. people from, from Boston just say wicked for oh, Wicked. Okay. Yeah. Wicked. It's very it's an it's adjective. Very I don't recall, uh, all of the above. I don't recall Dana using that very often. Hmm. I haven't heard it a whole lot from Dana, but every other person I know from the Boston area of New England. Oh. They do. They nice. do. And, and you got to understand, Captain Jeff, I've been in, in Atlanta in. Uh, September will be 20 years. That's long. I see. So, so the wicked has been wiped out of his vocabulary. Almost. So it pretty much has. Yeah. Almost. And there's a lot of, in kind of funny because the last week's, uh, last week's uh, uh, Nick segment on the, uh, the ATC version that he, I was his backup on making the air traffic controller. And he, you know, he said a uh, a Jersey accent from the '50s. So I kept on saying coffee, 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 trying to get the Jersey accent. But it was funny because when I was recording it, it almost come came out like I was a Southerner. And I was like, "That's just not right." <laughs> what kind <laughs> of accent? It, 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 it was a Southern accent. I was like, "Wait a minute, I'm from Boston." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I'll be in I'll be in Boston next month, so I'll um get some recording of uh, natives if I if I happen to hear any wicked usage. Well, Ivor has a wicked name uh, suggestion. HMS. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, uh, I don't think Her Majesty wants that ship. Thank you. Yeah. Liz said USS Wow. Or the USS yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on here. Uh, let's see. Got some feedback from Dr. Bo Abrahamson. I believe he's with us in the chat room today as well. He, he is oh, or was. Okay. Uh, excellent. So uh, he sent us some audio feedback, and uh, we're going to play it now. Hello, APG crew, captains, doctors. This is the middle-aged Camotian in, in Denmark, Dr. Bo Abrahamson. Long-time listener, I think, a couple of years. Um, this is my f- first feedback outside uh, Twitter and the, and the uh, chat room. I've, uh, I'm a non-pilot. I've been in the back of a lot of aircraft. Uh, my local airline, SAS, um, the uh, Who Dares Wins airline, um, have in the app calculated i've been around the world 7.3 times on, on on their flights and i've been on other aircraft as well um, and one thing that's never happened to me is uh, any medical emergencies so i'm always trying to stay dead sober and focused in case somebody needs a doctor which um never really has happened and and actually my question is do you not think it would be helpful for airlines to make a list of what equipment is available for doctors um, on, on their flights, because I'm sure that's very different. And as you know, it always helps to be prepared if you if you know what sort of kit is going to be available rather than having to uh, make decisions on the fly. So I'm really surprised that um, the airlines don't engage more with uh, the medical profession uh, to make sure that we know what's where and what's available. I think Lufthansa have some sort of scheme where uh, doctors can sign up and then they'll be known to um, to air crews as, um, as being physicians and that there might be some benefits as well. I'm not quite sure what the incentives are, but perhaps in that case you get, you, you get some information about what medical equipment would be available in an emergency. Anyway, I'm hugely enjoying your podcasts and always makes my drive to and from work a lot more enjoyable and Thank you very much. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bo, for your contribution of feedback and also on your uh, con- or recurring uh, contributions via the coffee fund. So um, we do appreciate that. Now, it was like a couple of days or maybe the day before you sent this audio feedback, uh, Liz put this piece of feedback in our feedback folder. And the uh, title of the article, it's from the cbc.ca, Is There a Doctor on Board? And it is um, an article talking about an article just published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, which uh, has the rundown on what and who is available in the cabin. And uh, we'll include this article. I'm not going to read it uh, in the show notes. And There's actually a great YouTube video that goes along with it that shows visually what uh, they have in their medical kits. I think it was for Air Canada. So Funny you should mention that, Dr. Steph. Uh, this is actually uh, supposed to go with this article, and I'm going to play a little bit of that audio for us. Hi, my name is Alan Ackery, and I'm an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital. 
And my name is David Kadama, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at the University of Toronto. Today we're going to be talking to you about an article that was published in the CMAJ in regards to in-flight medical emergencies. To supplement that article, today we'll be providing you with a detailed tour of Air Canada's medical kit, which will be provided to you in response to an in-flight medical emergency. We hope that this video will provide you some information and tools the next time that you are called upon in an in-flight emergency. So there you have it. There's a little bit, uh, just a little snippet of the very first part of the uh, video. And wow, talking about uh, coincidence, you know, Dr. Bo asking about or, you know, com not complaining, but uh, saying, why is it that we don't know what's in these things and, mm -hmm. you know, all the protocols involved. And I've been holding this feedback until Dr. Steph was able to uh, join us because I know that Dr. Steph has had an experience or two regarding, um, you know, emergencies on medical emergencies on airplanes. Fortunately, just one and fortunately on the ground. Um, I talked about that a ways back. I think that was back in what was it October of last year yeah, that that happened? Like that. I'm trying to remember. And, you know, I'm not going to get into naming which, which airline it was or anything, but a couple of things, just ground, ground work. I had actually um, just in talking on this podcast and other podcasts about medical stuff, um, made myself familiar with what uh, the FAA advertises as should be on medical kits on aircraft in the United States. So um, part 121, flights with at least one flight attendant are required to have this uh, uh, medical kit, emergency medical kit, and an AED, which is the automated external defibrillator. And it's uh, it has to be there. It's on the minimum equipment list. So um, it, I'm not going to read through everything that it has in it because I've done that before. But basically it has uh, or is supposed to have most of the minimum medications that you would use for common emergencies, including cardiac arrest, allergic reactions, um, uh, respiratory problems. So all kinds of, of, of common but serious life-threatening events. There should be equipment and medications to help manage those, those things. And you can find that even just by doing a, a Google search for, because uh, the FAA publishes it. And um, what it doesn't specify, though, is, is how those things have to be arranged or organized. Um, I think they pretty much just leave it up to every airline to put together their own kit. Um, and for the medical emergency that I was involved in, I actually took the role first of, uh, you know, doing the actual CPR and chest compression. So I wasn't the one that opened the kit to begin with. And by the time I was actually had swapped out and was looking at it, um, it had become very disorganized and disorderly and trying to find things within it was very difficult to do, especially in a tight cramped situation. And people had pulled things out. You know, the first two things on the content list from the FAA are the blood pressure cuff and stethoscope. I never saw those in the kit. I don't know if someone just pulled them out and checked them aside or where they went to, but it was, it was pretty disorganized. Um, I did like the video, um, the, the one that you were just playing the YouTube clip from air Canada. Um, their kit, very organized. You open it up and everything has a place that it kind of snaps into. So it, it's not just like free floating stuff in a in a bag. Um, it was very easy to see where everything was. And they had multiple, you know, above and beyond what the basic requirements, at least here in the US are in terms of amounts of medications um, and not really taking up a whole lot of space either. So, so very um, interesting to see that difference. Um, what else was I going to say about this? Um, but I, I agree with uh, Dr. Bo. I think it would be a very good idea to have more, uh, I think standardization would be a good thing. 
Um, you know, I think that's hard to do across multiple countries, but for at least whatever country you're in, whatever they've decided they're having as their minimum requirements or, or more than minimum requirements, put together a kit that's standard across, you know, different airlines, different uh, fleets, um, make it easy for the people who are responding to know what's in there and then provide some sort of basic education, maybe at least to people who are first responders or emergency room physicians. I was pretty fortunate that um, in the situation I was involved in, I was sitting next to a doctor who was an emergency room doctor because in my daily line of work, I'm not dealing with a whole lot of emergencies like this. I have the training for it, but he's the one who's really doing that every day. So we, you know, pretty quick came up as a decided what our roles in that team were going to be. He was going to be leading all of that because he had more of the recent familiarity with it. Um, so it just was very lucky in that situation. But but yeah, I, I think knowing what's on board and, and having that information widely available for people who might be called upon as first responders would be a very good good thing. Excellent. I'm glad that we had a doctor here to discuss this. And uh, thanks again, Dr. Bo, for sending in your audio feedback with a question and commentary. And also, uh, Liz, for sending in the feedback regarding this uh, article that was published in the Canadian, uh, what was it again? The Canadian Medical Association Journal. Again, uh, the article and the link to the video will be in the show notes for episode 315. and. Sticking with medical theme, Hamash Tihagas, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hamish, Hamish Tihagas, I think, uh, also known as Robert Fairburn. I think it's uh, Hamish. 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 Ah, darn it. Hamish the Haggis. Hamish the Haggis. There we go. Or Hamish T. Haggis. Hamish, yes. Hamish T. Haggis. <laughs> I'll get it right eventually. Uh, he says, I'm slightly behind with the podcast, listening to 310 right now, and just came across Ian's. Uh, excuse me, Ian's feedback regarding getting a medical certificate with type 1 diabetes. While I can't speak to that condition specifically, I have mentioned previously that there is a doctor and AME in the Midwest who specializes in helping people to understand their likelihood of achieving certification and how to do so. My experience has been that some AMEs are better than others at being upfront with people about the realities of their condition. This is important because if your application is a challenging one, it is essential to have all your research and paperwork done before applying. The FAA tends to respond with a request for more info, which must be answered within 30 days. Having the research and paperwork done ahead of time allows you to respond quickly, avoiding a denial of your application, which is exceedingly hard to supersede later. The AME, the AME I refer to is Dr. Bruce Chien, or Sheen, C-H-I-E-N, and he is reachable at aeromedicaldoc at comcast.net or his website at aeromedicaldoc.com. That's A-E-R-O-M-E-D-I-C-A-L-D-O-C dot com. If you would pass this along to Ian and anyone else who may be facing a difficult medical application, I would appreciate it, and I hope it helps. Again, that was from Hamish T. Haggis, Robert Fairburn, and uh, Steph, what do you, you have any comments about this kind so, of thing? I my only comment that I want to make is that um, there's a wide, um, at least here in the U.S., um, uh, AMEs, our uh, medical examiners are, you know, they go through training that is um, put forth by the FAA, but 
they're coming from a wide variety of backgrounds in terms of their own personal medical practice and training. Some AMEs are doing that full-time. Um, quite a few are family practice uh, doctors, internal medicine doctors, general practitioners who um, may see a couple, um, anywhere from a couple aviation medical examinations a day to one a month or less frequently. So it kind of gets back to that kind of recency of experience that I was talking about. So even though they have the training for it, um, if you're doing it every day all the time, you're going to come across a lot more of these um, unusual situations as opposed to someone who's just doing a couple here and there or less frequently and may not have all the detailed information right at hand, even though they have access to that information. But certainly the folks who are doing uh, AME or uh, aviation medical examinations, um, either as their main job or even with a specific focus in um, dealing with more difficult situations, are going to know how to navigate that system a lot more easily than, than some others. So there is a difference in, uh, you know, uh, aviation medical examinations out there, just like there's differences in any professional that you're going to go see. Everyone's got different interests and backgrounds. So just keep that in mind. And um, at least here in the U.S., you are free to choose who you see for your aviation medical examiner. And you may want to do some research in advance, especially if you know you have a difficult, uh, potentially difficult case going into it. So Yeah, that could make all the difference in the world, right? Yeah. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Robert, for your feedback regarding um, that uh, advice for Ian. Ian. Thank you. All right, moving on. Liz sent this in a while back. The International Space Station is getting its first form of art, uh, artificial intelligence. Hang on here. Let me play this. <laughs> Perfect. Nick's lawnmower has escaped again. That's someone hoovering the Starship Enterprise. Yes, I guess. that's the uh, cleanup crew uh, after hours. <laughs> Uh, they have a, uh, a flying intelligent drone named Simone. I would imagine that's the way you pronounce that. C-I-M-O-N, which stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. The droid is a medical ball-sized device and weighs about five kilograms. It will be joining the crew at the ISS as a companion to a European astronaut, the German geophysicist Alexander Gerst, later this year. The flying drone is eerily similar to other space-based intelligent companions like Holly from the TV show Red Dwarf. Simone has a digital face and voice and is set to assist Gerst on different tasks during his time at the ISS. It's designed by Airbus uh, and uh, fitted with IBM's uh, AI Watson. It will be helping the astronauts with experiments on the space station. For instance, Simone will partake in a complex medical experiment where he will act as an intelligent flying camera. As well, Gerst and Simone will be carrying out an experiment with crystals and attempt to solve the Rubik Magic Cube based on videos. The developers hope that Simone will be an interactive assistant to the astronauts and help reduce their stress as well as improve efficiency. 
In addition, Simone should help enhance safety on the ISS, as the drone can serve as an early warning system uh, in case of any technical problems. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? <laughs> this mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. So nothing could go wrong with this uh, artificial intelligence drone. And nothing ever does go wrong with these artificial intelligence devices. Never. Did you, uh, this is a little bit of a, a sidetrack here, but did you hear about the Amazon Echo Alexa um, that had kind of a glitch where it was laughing creepily, unprompted? Oh, the creepy laugh, yes. The creepy I, laugh. I listened to that in uh, Twit. It was or, very good. Uh, yeah. You know, reading out, uh, unprompted, reading out a list of local funeral homes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The guy who that happened to said, he goes, it's in the trash. <laughs> and it's never coming back well, You know back what, they, they were uh, some of these tech shows uh, that, uh, that uh, Captain Nick was alluding to. They said, yeah. you know, actually, it was probably something that it interpreted somebody saying. I mean, I, like occasionally we'll be doing the show and I'll say something that my iPhone thinks I'm saying, hey, Siri or Siri. Or yes. Whatever. Oh, See? yeah, it just popped up. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Did you accidentally summon me? It says. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes. Uh, you know, it's amazing. You think about the movie Terminator a long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it, uh, how it predicted before any of this stuff was available. I mean, really, before we even had cell phones, the first Terminator came out and predicted artificial intelligence. Now we're kind of here now, aren't we? Yep. Yeah, but I, I like uh, what they, they said on this technical uh, podcast that Jess alluding to that uh, they are actually so stupid that it's going to take an awful long time before they ever get to the point where they can take over the world. <laughs> Did you see, I was watching some show where That's they had... That's what they want you to think, Nick. That's what they want you to think. <laughs> I think there was like um, a show where they were, they put like an, uh, an Alexa and, or a whatever they call it, um, and a Google Home device, a couple of these from different companies, and they started talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just nonsensical. It didn't make any sense at all. You know, the it's like when you, um, you know, you go on your phone and you just hit the predictive text and you start with one word and then you just keep hitting the center one to come up to see if you can make a whole sentence. And it makes no sense. Sometimes it's probably that's what I imagine happens if you put a bunch of those together. That's what so. Steph is doing when she's supposedly doing injections. There you go. <laughs> that's why she giggles occasionally. That's funny. <laughs> Oh, anyway, so thanks, Liz, for the uh, information on the drone in the ISS. Um, Matt writes, number five, hello to Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain in Training, Dana, and Dr. Steph. Love the podcast. Let's get into it. Being a kid of the mid-80s, 90s, I grew up in what I believe was the last of the real jet age, and I was fortunate to witness many classic airliners on a regular basis being overhead every day. I'm only 34, but I feel as of late I'm getting nostalgic for the variety of airliners that I got to see as a kid. Having two young children myself now, it seems as though the aircraft and liveries are lacking the variety I was fortunate to see as a kid. For myself, growing up in the Minneapolis area and a son of a current pilot at Acme Regional, it was always seeing the Northwest Orient paint or the bright red Northwest Airlink turboprops fly overhead. 
I also enjoyed seeing, at the time, the rare Acme colors of the 80s and early 90s flying overhead. Nowadays, it's all Acme, all the time, at K Mike Sierra Papa, or Minneapolis St. Paul, as we like to say. We'll not worry about that little stroke yeah, that you just had there. This is a minor little, what do they call those little strokes? TIA. Yeah, <laughs> that little TIA there. Ah, nowadays, it's all Acme, all the time, at Kilo Mike Sierra Papa, or so it seems. My question is pretty simple, and I don't believe it would divulge too much info about Acme Airlines. The question is for all of you. For Captain Jeff and Captain in Training Dana, what era was is your favorite paint scheme on the Acme aircraft? For Captain Nick, same question. However, I don't believe Acme Red has had many livery changes to its fleet over the years. And finally, for Dr. Steph, since you don't fly for an airline, what is your favorite livery currently on an airliner or while growing up? So, Dana, are you? Oh, there you are. What about you? Yeah, I'm here. What was your yeah, favorite um, paint scheme on the uh, Acme's? The Acme, the the classic widget that they had in the mid '80s. Uh, that by far is my favorite, and especially the way it looked on the L10 and the 72. Um, it was just a beautiful paint scheme. Uh, my least favorite was the flying bag. I call it the flying through the supermarket bag, which is catch you know the vegetable bags. They had that wavy, really funky. Uh, paint scheme so yeah and they had like the, the uh delta oops, excuse me acme in lowercase <laughs> letters instead of uh uppercase i think yes yeah. yes it was it was just weird I agree. so yeah that's, and i have a t-shirt that actually has that on i just don't want to wear it on air oh that's okay but that is this is a this is an airline that's very similar to acme airlines um and in fact the paint scheme of uh, delta looked a lot like our acme paint scheme uh, is this the one to which you're referring, Dana? I am absolutely. I'm I'm actually having heart flutters because I love that so much. That's just such a sexy beast right there. Yeah. Those, um, and you, the folks that are not seeing this because uh, they're listening to the podcast, you can look up the L1011 um, in the classic uh, scheme and to see it yourself. I like the retro um, when I see some of these. Uh, well, not not all are retro, but uh, many of them are the ones where they used to paint a, a stripe along where the window line was, as I was just showing with this um, postcard that I was showing on the video. I, I kind of like that. Now, it seems like most airlines have gotten away from that and simplified things a bit. In fact, some some airlines look almost like the same livery, uh, but different carriers and uh not so sure that that's a great idea. I think that's what Matt is alluding to, that they're, they're all looking the same. <laughs> but um, anyway, Nick, how about uh, uh, Acme Red? Well, uh, over the pond, we see a huge variety in uh, colors, and some of them are, you know, brilliant. Some of them are way out. I mean, you've got to look at WOW, um, Norwegian, have a very odd paint screen, but it's very um, individualistic where the, the whole sort of nose area of the aircraft painted bright red. It's a bit like um, having a big boil on the end of your finger or, or worse. I was just thinking of another appendage, but perhaps I shouldn't. <laughs> Did you say um, wow? Please. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, and Siri on that one. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, uh, you see them coming in and out of uh, uh, Heathrow, and, uh, you know, it, it look, they look great, some of them. Uh, the old-fashioned um, 
BA1 doesn't really impress me at all. Uh, I quite liked uh, it when they were a little bit more formal and they had almost like a um, a crown and a, uh, a little crest on their aircraft. So that was kind of neat. Nick, it's your paint scheme on your yeah yeah I'm, I'm just i'm just commenting on the era so i quite like the era um when it comes to uh, acme red well we've had four or five different schemes probably more than that so uh, but they've all basically had uh, uh the big acme red um signature on the tail uh, so that bit hasn't changed, but my favorite by far is the current one, which has uh, uh, metalized uh, white, so it's glitter, and uh, it has that amazing uh, lipstick red, uh, which is like lip gloss. It's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. So when you see one of those, it, it's un- unmistakable. I, I, I love and it. And I love the like the pinup girls that you have on the with the name of the particular airplane um yeah yeah the company has always been very good about matching registrations with the name of the aircraft uh, and it's always something that's a bit fun or a bit cheeky uh which i always think and i actually quite liked uh, their old habit of putting when uh, the aircraft was airborne um so in other words you know emphasizing the fact that it's a very new fleet so uh, they put the date there and perhaps where it came from or something they've always got some good ideas yeah Stuff. Do they not do that anymore because the fleet isn't as new as it once was? <laughs> they don't no. want to draw attention in the other direction. <laughs> no, I think they're a bit worried that all these new bin runners, which are brand new, are sitting out there parked up. And so we're going, well, actually, it's not a great advertisement for brand new airplanes. But there you go. No, they, they, I think it's just one of those things they phase in, phase out. So well, you, hear, you hear, hear a lot of people say, if it ain't Boeing, ain't going. Well, pretty much that's the way it is nowadays. If it's Boeing, you're not going. <laughs> well, on some of them, I, I, I think we're, uh, we're suffering particularly badly uh, uh, with our choice of uh, versions of uh, Boeings uh, and the engines we've got. But we needed those particular types of engines to get out of the hot high airports that we needed to operate that aircraft uh and it hasn't worked for us at the moment they'll obviously they'll eventually sort it out but it's going to take quite some time and there are other airlines that have got uh engines that aren't quite as highly tuned that are now moving into the same problem area that we have been uh suffering but it's not just unfortunately just the engines there are a a series of other significant problems with the bin liner that we have been suffering through um and hopefully uh you know they'll eventually come out the other end with a reasonable standard of uh, of um serviceability something that hasn't been um very good up to now uh steph your favorite Liver? So interesting question because I've never really thought about it before. I don't know that I've ever really looked at one airline versus another and been like, "Ooh, I really like their livery. I don't like theirs." Um, How about the bright yellow think, spirit? Well, <laughs> so I, there are certainly some that I think are more pleasing to the eye than others, um, but I've never really given it a whole lot of consideration in the past. I will say that when airlines, you know, go from having one. A particular design for a very long time and then they change it i tend to not like it initially and then it kind of grows on you after a while and you go oh no that actually is nicer and more modern and up to date and good good change overall mm-hmm. um i've always liked um the southwest liveries where they do the states um because they have a whole bunch of planes that are are 
painted for different state flags and state designs. I always thought that was kind of neat. Um, but growing up, I don't know that I ever really paid a whole lot of attention to it. Um, I'd say that I probably flew on Southwest more than any other airline when I was younger. Um, and that was back in the days when those planes were, they called them their ugly brown uh, planes because they were not painted a very flattering color, but they would admit to that um, quite readily. <laughs> yeah. I think they always say something like, today's, thanks for flying on our ugly brown plane today. Today's version um, is much more attractive. Much nicer, yeah. yes. I, like, I do like the Canyon Blue, I think is the exact name of the blue color for the livery. I, but anyway. I was thinking about the um, Northwest Airlines. Uh, one of their paint schemes looked like uh, we used to call them the flying bowling shoe. Because <laughs> it, have... it was like red and blue. Yeah, it like, looked like a bowling Split. shoe. Like, yeah. you know, you go to the bowling alley I, and wear your bowling shoes. I will yeah. say I do like ANA's um, Star Wars themed um, Which one? aircraft. ANA, don't they have the R2-D2? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, those are kind of fun. I like when airlines do... And, and they had Pokemon and they've had other uh, schemes that have gone through some of the great New Did Zealand have had some great, yes, uh, yes. great schemes as well. Didn't I, happen to, I, happen to, I happen to love the uh, uh, frontier tail paint scheme because yes. everyone has a different animal on it and it's absolutely gorgeous. And did it's you know that if you, if you fly with them, you can request from the flight attendant, a, a collector card. So you no, can collect all I've of the different uh, animals. Never been on. Hmm. Didn't know that. Very cool. Very cool. I, I really like what American, um, and I guess maybe U.S. Air did it before they merged with American, but the um, the retro paint jobs. And so you see the Piedmont. Yep. They still have those. Yeah. Yep. I see them occasionally was, at Charlotte, especially Piedmont and um, PSA. PSA. And, yep. uh, JetBlue Jet has an airplane painted as the Red Sox. That's my favorite, actually. Uh, <laughs> and they also named they named their airplanes too. All their airplanes have a something blue in the title of the. Yeah. Going back to talking about aircraft with names. So. Well, uh, very good, very good. Thank you, Matt, for your question uh, regarding aircraft deliveries. And I think now it's about time for our segment or our installment of the old pilot's plane tales. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Lady Lex and Scoop's Wildcat. The Lady Lex started life as a battlecruiser, but during her construction she fell foul of the 1922 Washington Naval Treaty, which limited the construction of all new battleships and battlecruisers. Her design was changed. She was converted into one of the U.S. Navy's first aircraft carriers. She and her sister, the Saratoga, entered service in 1928 and were assigned to the Pacific Fleet. The Lexington was at sea when America entered the war, following the duplicious Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941, an attack that she herself had successfully staged more than once before during exercises to test Pearl Harbor's defences. The Lexington was sent to the Coral Sea to block any Japanese advances into the area, but she was spotted and attacked by bombers, most of which were successfully shot down in defence of the carrier. 
During this period, she attacked and sank shipping off Papua New Guinea before defending the Australian town of Port Moresby from Japanese invasion forces, seriously damaging the light aircraft carrier Shoho, which was then sunk by aircraft from Yorktown. After his attack, Lieutenant Commander Robert Dixon, commander of VS-2, radioed his famous message to the American carriers. Scratch one flat top. Then, during the Battle of the Coral Sea, whilst in running engagements with the Japanese carriers Shokak and Zikak, the Lexington was spotted and attacked by torpedo bombers. Although three were shot down, 11 enemy aircraft survived long enough to hit the Lexington twice on the port side. The shock jammed both elevators in the up position and caused leaks from the port side avgas tanks. Her port fire rooms were also flooded, which meant the boilers there had to be shut down, reducing her speed to around 25 knots and giving her a six-degree list. Shortly after, she suffered another attack, this time by 19 bombers, and she was hit by two bombs. The first struck an ammunition locker, killing a gun crew and starting several fires. The second struck the funnel, but the carrier was still operational and continued to launch and recover aircraft. Fuel was pumped to the starboard side to correct the list, but then a massive explosion occurred deep within the vessel. Sparks had ignited the leaking portside fuel tanks. 25 crew members were killed and the main damage control centre disabled. Despite the damage, the Lexington continued to launch aircraft, although it could no longer refuel landing fighters. Ninety minutes later, a second explosion rocked the Lexington, which blew the forward elevator a foot above the level of the flight deck, and although the ship's company bravely fought the fires, a third explosion knocked out water pressure in the hangar, and eventually all the compartments below the waterline had to be evacuated. The carrier drifted to a halt, and evacuation of the wounded commenced. An hour later, another series of explosions blew pieces off the ship and aircraft into the air, and Sherman, the officer commanding, ordered abandoned ship. He remained on board for a further thirty minutes to ensure that all were off the ship before leaving himself. 2,770 officers and men were successfully rescued, and then the destroyer Phelps was ordered to sink the crippled carrier. A few minutes before 8pm, she slipped below the waves. An officer said, There she goes. She didn't turn over. She's going down with her head up. Dear old Lex, a lady to the last. 216 crew members had died in her defence. Lexington received two battle stars for her World War II service. She was officially struck from the Naval Register on the 24th of June, 1942. Lady Lex lay undisturbed on the seabed for some 76 years, until very recently she was rediscovered by the research vessel Petrel, which is funded by the Microsoft billionaire Paul Allen. 
using state-of-the-art subsea equipment, the Petrel was able to photograph the Lexington, which is 3,000 metres, around two miles, below the surface. The photographs show the ship, but more importantly to us aviators, some of its aircraft, in remarkably good condition, particularly a single Grumman F4F Wildcat. Clearly visible on the side are the markings for the squadron VF-3, four Japanese kills and a successful bomb strike. Although it's early days, it looks like this aircraft, although designated to Lieutenant Noel Gaylor, was last flown on the day the carrier sank by a remarkable Navy pilot, Scoop Voss. Albert Ogden Voss Jr. came into this world on the 9th of August 1914 and called Philadelphia his home. Although his father worked as a forester, he sent his eldest son to the prestigious prep school Phillips Academy Andover, where he excelled and was on the wrestling, swimming and track teams. From there he went to the U.S. Naval Academy, where he also played football. Obviously a man destined to join the ranks of the Sky Gods, in 1940 Voss was detached from his first ship, the Astoria, to attend Naval Air Base Pensacola for flight training, the same year as his wife gave birth to their son. His first attachment was to the aircraft carrier Saratoga, where he joined VF-3 Fighter Squadron in early '41. Here he mixed with high-caliber naval pilots and officers, such as their CO, Jimmy Thatch, who developed the Thatch-Weave tactic. This involved units of aircraft weaving across each other regularly to lure an enemy into focusing on one element, allowing the other to cross behind and attack the pursuer. Thatch knew that the F-4 Wildcat could be outclimbed and outturned by the Japanese Mitsubishi Zero and devised the tactic to give the Wildcat a chance. Initially, it confounded the Zero pilots, and American pilots even used it during the Vietnamese War. VF-3 had an imposing pedigree, and was the very first carrier-trained unit, then called VF-2, and among the first in the Navy to also employ dive-bombing tactics. Scoop Voss joined as a section leader and although his stint with VF-3 was a short one, he saw combat and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. It was the 20th of February 1942, and some Japanese flying boats were shadowing the carrier. Thatch's first division got airborne and shot down some of the snoopers, but they had passed on the carrier's position. Voss was part of the second division, which was subsequently launched, but saw nothing, and were on their way back to the carrier as Division 3 got airborne. The 3rd Division saw and engaged the Japanese 4th Koktai, and Voss was turned back to assist. He arrived in time to harry the disorganized bombers, and according to the citation for his DFC, for heroic conduct in aerial combat, 
when on February 20, 1942, in enemy waters, he made vigorous and determined attacks in the face of combined enemy machine gun and cannon fire against a formation of heavy bombers, and he, with the assistance of his teammate, caused the destruction of one enemy bomber. On the 11th of January 1942, the Saratoga was torpedoed and forced to return to Pearl Harbor for repairs. The Navy knew that trouble was brewing in the Coral Sea and the Lexington was in need of experienced pilots, so Scoop Voss was loaned to VF-2 aboard the Lady Lex. The Battle of the Coral Sea didn't start particularly well for Voss when he lost track of some Douglas devastators he was supposed to be escorting, and on returning to the Lexington, he saw through a break in the cloud that flak was filling the sky. Spotting an Alchi D-3A Val dive bomber making a run on the Yorktown, he attacked, shooting off its wing. Even with this result, the bomb only just missed the Yorktown. It was during the action that eventually sank the Lexington that Scoop Voss was awarded a gold star in lieu of the second Distinguished Flying Cross. His citation reads, For heroism and extraordinary achievement in aerial combat in the Battle of the Coral Sea on May the 8th, and again in the Solomon Islands campaign on August the 8th, the 22nd, 24th, 1943. In addition to shooting down two hostile dive bombers in the earlier action, Lieutenant Voss persistently leading his section in bold assaults against enemy aircraft over the Solomon Islands, pressed home his attacks with such relentless fighting spirit and aggressive courage that he shot down one Japanese dive bomber, one Zero fighter and one four-engine patrol plane. Having had his ship sunk from beneath him, Voss was moved to Pearl Harbor as the XO of a training unit, but eager to get back to sea, he jumped at the chance to join VF-6 on board USS Enterprise. The carrier was part of Task Force 61, bound for Guadalcanal. This was to be a true test for the Navy pilots, as veteran air races from the Japanese 5th Air Attack Force would soon be bearing down on them. It was now August 1942, and Scoop Voss, with his fellow VF-6 pilots, were regularly being launched on air patrols. One of the pilots under his command... Frank, cash register, recalled in his diary, At 1100 hours, our section intercepted a four-engine Jap patrol plane. Voss, our section leader, set it afire on his first run, so I didn't even get a shot. It went into a spin and the wings and tail came off. One man jumped out without a parachute, and I tried to catch him and shoot him, but couldn't overtake him. It didn't make any difference, though. He fell 8,000 feet. Other formal entries read, A Terrible Day, August the 24th, 1942. A Japanese air attack on USS Enterprise leaves 75 men dead and nearly 100 wounded after three bombs explode, causing severe damage. Launched, 6VF Flight 351, Mission Combat Air Patrol, Action, Sumrall, Vorse, and Losh shoot down one zero each. 
Register, shot down 1-0 and 1-ME-109. Voss landed in the water near Saratoga and was picked up by a destroyer. Fighting Squadron 80 was established on the 1st of February 1944. Assigned to command the new unit was Lieutenant Commander Albert O. Voss, Jr., on the 16th of October 1944, Voss was moved up to Air Group Commander. In the fighter squadron's first combat action of the 5th of November 1944, targets were airfields and ground installations northeast of Manila. Voss's Vipers were credited with shooting down four Japanese Oscars, with Scoop Voss claiming one of the four. For the next four months, Vorsi's Vipers would wreak havoc on the Japanese Navy. Operation Sweep Easy, led by Lieutenant Commander Vorsi, was launched on the 14th of December. Enemy airfields at Leog were thoroughly strafed, resulting in the destruction of at least nine enemy and damage to many others. As the attack concluded, Vorsi saw three Oscars below him, followed by three more, and then two Tonys. The official citation reads, For meritorious achievement as leader of a group of 20 fighter planes in action against enemy Japanese forces over the Philippine Islands on November 5, 1944, he is awarded the Air Medal. The citation further states, Although five of his guns jammed whilst leading an attack against enemy aircraft, he succeeded in shooting down one hostile fighter, continuing to press home a vigorous attack. He damaged another airborne aircraft and destroyed two planes on the ground. The target for the 15th of January was again Formosa, and flying conditions were extremely poor. While making a low-level attack on a destroyer, Scoop lost seven feet of his wing to anti-aircraft gunfire. The impact blew his F4F onto its back at 200 feet, struggling to hold the Hellcat upright at just 50 feet above the surface. Vorse made it back to the task group by holding the stick all the way over with both hands. After making a 160-knot water landing, he was once again picked up by a destroyer with nothing more than a few bumps and bruises. The enemy destroyer he was attacking had been sunk, as well as two other ships. This time he received the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism in action against enemy Japanese forces in the vicinity of Formosa, January 15, 1945. Skillfully leading eight fighters and 13 bomber planes in a strike against enemy shipping, he broke through solid overcast at 2,000 feet, and saw a large Terasuki-class destroyer below. Commencing his masthead attack amid extremely heavy anti-aircraft fire, he released his 1,000-pound bomb and scored a direct hit on the ship, which was seen to explode shortly afterwards. Although over six feet of his starboard wing was blown off by enemy fire, he completed his attack and successfully manoeuvred his plane back to the task group where he was forced to make a difficult water landing. Finally, Scoop received the Silver Star for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity 
in the vicinity of Tokyo on February the 16th, 1945, leading a formation of 18 fighter planes on a sweep against enemy air forces and ground installations, he shot down four hostile aircraft and destroyed two more on the ground. His squadron finished the war with 159 and a half enemy aircraft destroyed in the air and about 60 more probable destroyed or damaged. Vorsi's Vipers had done their job well, including the destruction of considerable enemy shipping and many aircraft and installations on the ground. What I now find amazing is that we can gaze upon a piece of history lying two miles below the surface of the sea that can bring the actions of this true American hero back into the light. Seems like uh, Scoop really liked the water. <laughs> yes, you could say that. I never found out why he was called Scoop. I think I have an idea. Because they kept <laughs> having on, to man. scoop him out of the water. <laughs> right? I thought, he might, again. I thought he might have a fondness for ice cream. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, like just about every single thing that he did ended up him crashing in the water, I think. Um, yeah. By the way, I've got to thank Van City Matt, who uh, suggested I uh, tackle that story. And uh, I had just seen uh, the very day that uh, uh, Matt got in touch with me, um, the pictures in uh, on the London Times newspaper I get. And I was l looking at the side of this uh, wildcat going, wow, that's incredible. You can see all the detail of the paintwork on the side of the cockpit. Um, that, that's remarkable. And then I got this uh, message and I thought, oh, that'll be a great story, perhaps. That'll be good. Well, thanks, Matt. you're correct. It was a great story. Thank you again for that master telling of uh, the story. Oh, let's see. I, I ended up uh, eating a banana and some yogurt to keep my stomach from making growling noises. <laughs> that's an amazing coincidence because that's what I've been snacking on as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yogurt and I'm almost finished with my banana. The official food of the APG crew. Of the Saturday morning APG, yeah. yes. All right. Let's see. Where did we leave off here? Um, Wade sent us some feedback. First time reaching out to the podcast with a message. I am still new to the show yet was already, oh, I'm still new to the show, comma, yet was already well infected with the syndrome well before hearing a single moment. I'd found the show in a search for Catholic podcast or flipping through the charts to see what were some of the top hits out there, stumbling across the Catholic pilot, which sounded pleasant enough to try. As it turns out, I struck upon a discussion I've always longed to hear and become a part of. The rest is history. No, I'm not reveling in obscure amounts of free time to catch up on the old APG episodes, yet the old pilot's plane tales would make my time well spent, despite time investment it involves. I have the ability to get two to three shows in a week, much to the dismay of my wife, who seems to have never realized on the front end the intensity of my aviation affections. I am the grandson and son of Navy aircraft mechanics. But how apropos, right after this telling of a mm -hmm. Navy uh, aviator. 
Anyway, um, I'm the grandson and son of Navy aircraft mechanics, and during my youth, enjoyed greatly in the shingle peeling the local FA-18 squadrons did to my parents' roof. During my final years of primary school, we relocated to a nearby major international airport, once an exciting Acme hub, and the entirely new world of commercial aircraft was opened up to me to become an extension of my long, lifelong fascination. I also had the opportunity to spend some time out around the former Reese Air Force Base during my college days. Not sure if Captain Jack, Jeff ever had the privilege of flying into there before being shut down. Nope, never had the privilege of flying into Reese. You were sh- shot down? I didn't know that. Uh, Who shot you down? Well, I don't want to really talk about it. You know, a little modest. <laughs> you know, I got the, uh, what is it, the Distinguished Flying Cross for that one? Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, mm. well, you know. For being shot down, that's good. <laughs> that's oh, wait a minute. I'm not saying how, dis- in which way he was being distinguished. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's not the right, uh, what, what would I get for that? Maybe the Purple Heart? I don't know. If you were wounded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, yes. I hit my head against something. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Makes so much sense. I know. <laughs> okay. Um, in the recent episode, you had mentioned a forthcoming discussion on colorblindness, and this is the real gap between me doing what I do today and becoming a prof- professional pilot. I'm unable to pass the color test with the color plates, usually falling on short of the minimum. I'll be pressing onward and looking deeper into determining determining my ability to pass an alternative test based on the story shared and discussed on your show. Yeah, we hope that that really works out for you because apparently a lot of people have been able to pass doing the alternative methods. Mm-hmm. So, okay, he continues, Wade. Uh, two more things I found potential to add to your delightful discussion on a recent trip I had. Number one. I was able to sit next to a couple returning home after they had flown Queensland and Northern Territories Aerial Services, uh, Qantas, to DFW on an A380 from Sydney, and I inquired as to their seating location on the upper or lower deck, in which they replied there was only one level on the airplane, and after clarifying, they insisted the plane had one level. It would be interesting to know how many people fly on a dual-level aircraft and fail to notice, it might be a heartbreaking statistic. I do believe it would be. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> there are probably a lot of people that fly on the A380 and have no idea it's a double-decker. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure how you can miss that once you actually go to board the aircraft, but... Well, you'd have to be you know, looking I'm, outside. I'm never surprised by what some people managed to pick up on and fail to pick up on. So, you know, I've told my story before when, uh, at, at Nassau, when they had the, uh, uh, before they had jetways, you know, we had the air stairs and we were, you know, it was kind of a long walk between where our jet was parked and the terminal. And I'm looking outside and watching all these people walking out. And I, I kind of yelled to the flight attendants, Hey, it looks like they're on their way. Well, you know, they're, we're boarding. And then I watched these people walk by our jet and get, start getting on a Continental Airlines 727. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, never mind. False alarm. I thought they were coming out for us. Well, apparently they were supposed to be coming to our jet, which was clear what airline it was on, you know, painted all over our airplane. And uh, the, just like cattle, they all followed the people that were leading the line and 
went into the Continental Jet and there was no crew on the Continental Jet. And finally, <laughs> they realized that maybe this was not the right airplane. Uh, You're like looking around going, and that's that, like we're missing something that, here. That, yeah, big quiet. So yeah. dark. <laughs> that just dark. That just cemented my uh, opinion that people really don't care what airline it is. It's like whatever the cheapest fare is, and that's you know whatever. But uh, yeah, anyway, a lot of people. I shouldn't say everybody, but. Okay, uh, number two, flying on a leg from Denver to Charlotte, the crew set a cruise or the cruise altitude to flight level 210 to avoid a turbulent ride. Is this more common than I realize? As in all my years, I've never flown a three hour journey at such a reduced altitude. Upon arrival, I would have anticipated it being a class three approach, knowing weather conditions beforehand and a full utilization of a computerized landing on the old French bump and sway, scare bus for short. The captain flying as the first officer would frequently address us uh, on the intercom to keep us informed on timing. I would have anticipated an uneventful arrival. However, the glide slope we were on is what we followed straight onto the runway, landing with no flare. I would understand a visibility were completely zero to the ground, yet we broke through around 150 to 200 feet. And I would have thought that there was something the flight deck could have done to decrease the descent rate. Is there enough time available in such in such a situation for a decision and action to take place if the computer was flying? Was the computer even flying or was this just a job poorly done? Thanks. Keep up the good work and would be happy to meet up happening or would be happy to get a meetup happening in Little Rock next time one of the Mad Dogs stay the night. One of my mates here in town also flies the Mad Dog for Acme. I'm sure he would have an excellent time. Uh, he attached some images from his most recent outing. And again, we'll make sure that we put this in the show notes so you can see them as well. One is of a familiar airplane to the producers of the show on my way out of town. The other is of the airport where I spent many of my childhood days, having lived in the vicinity of the water tower above the British vertical stabilizer. Okay, I'm looking at the picture now. Hmm. I don't know where that is. Do you? The first one is n not in the U.S., I don't think. Yeah, it's British Airways, Qantas, Lufthansa, clearly an international okay. array of airliners, and I don't recognize that. Do you, Nick? No, no, not, not immediately. I have to have a closer look at it, but uh, I can't expand the picture up quite enough to get any more detail out of it. I don't recognize that bit of the terminal. Yeah. The second photo here, the one uh, with a very familiar airplane, a Mad Dog, and I uh, believe it's from Little Rock Airport, uh, looks familiar to me. I was just there last week, actually. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so he asked the question regarding the, uh, the flight level 210, um, in, is, is that a common thing? And it's not very common, Wade, but occasionally uh, we must fly at a pretty low altitude like that to avoid, you know, moderate or worse turbulence at the higher altitudes. And what that means is we burn a lot more fuel, but of course, you know, it's planned for that. And uh, I've flown a couple of flights from the Northeast New England area down to Atlanta. So, um, you know, it also takes us longer because we're not 
you know, we're just flying at a lower altitude makes our, our uh, true airspeed a little bit lower and ground speed a little bit lower as well. So, or is that right? Or am I getting that backwards? Maybe the lower you are, the higher the true airspeed. Anyway, um, I don't know. What was the question? I'm sorry, I was distracted. I was thinking that at a lower <laughs> altitude, the true airspeed would be a little bit lower as well than at the higher altitudes. Yeah, it will be. Okay. But, uh... but the winds would be lower as well, usually. So it really depends. I guess it's a variable. Yeah, your indicated airspeed can be lower, sorry, higher at lower levels, which can compensate and give you a higher ground speed. Mm -hmm. So quite often, if uh, we need to get somewhere quickly, we'll be programmed in the low 30s rather than climb up to the high 30s where uh, you start hitting your Mach limit and you have to slow off a bit for that. Yeah. Um, let's see. So that, yeah, that happens, I'd say... On average, for me, maybe once or twice a year, where we are down in the in the low twenties. Uh, it's it, it, what's interesting about it is that, especially when you're traveling from, let's say, Hartford, Connecticut, to Atlanta, Georgia, um, at twenty one thousand feet, you really you really see a lot more on the ground. Um, you know, you're flying along the Appalachian Range, and it's a uh, it's fun for us because you know, even though ten thousand feet. It doesn't seem like it would make that much difference. It really does. I mean, you can see a lot more when you're down at 21 as opposed to 31 or something like that. But um, the other thing he asks about is the uh, approach and landing. Oh, and also I, I should add that it, it's not always the case if you hear the captain talking on the PA that the first officer is automatically going to be the one that's flying the airplane. Uh, it, it might be a captain like me that regardless of whether the first officer is flying or whether I'm flying, I still like to make the, the PA. So that could be the case in, in this situation. But um, I'm thinking that if it truly were a category three approach and they had set it up for that, which I do occasionally, if you were not exactly sure of what the weather conditions are going to be at the airport at our arrival time, uh, may set up for a Category 3 approach, and you may end up breaking out at about 150, 200 feet, as you mentioned in your feedback. And if you've briefed to do an auto land approach, uh, Category 3, uh, at that point, you're kind of committed to it. You know, you only have two choices, either auto land or go around. And uh, so I, I suspect that maybe in this case, um, unless the airplane was doing something really funky, below that 150 feet uh, that the crew would have just allowed the airplane to continue its auto land. But and that I have a feeling it may depend on the airplane and it may depend on the uh, airline's operating policy. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, that's, we, we do the same, Jeff. If we've uh, planned uh, to do a uh, an auto land, unless we break out above the Cat 1 minima, um, we will continue to uh, do a full auto land. Uh, if you're above the cap one minimum, then it's your choice. Uh, if the guy wants to take it out, then that's fine. Uh, but um, we really don't like him taking out the autopilot uh, uh, below cap one um, because uh, he's got very few, very little time to acquire the visual cues, make sure everything's looking fine, take it out, get a feel for the airplane before he's straight in the flare and uh, and having to put it on the ground. And that's, you know, possibly one of the reasons why it might have been a firm landing if the guy had taken control very late. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. 
I saw. And, and usually... Sometimes it happens in good weather conditions, too, where you just <laughs> experience a nice firm landing. What? Yeah. No way. So, no, yeah. I mean, never to any of us, no, right? No, no. <laughs> I don't know. As a, as a passenger riding on commercial aircraft, the two uh, landings that I would rate the firmest both happen on clear, sunny days with no significant adverse weather, wind, anything going on. So ah. for whatever that's worth, and I will not mention which airlines. That's. Oh, go on. <laughs> One was here in Charlotte, so you can guess which airline that may have been. Mm -hmm. And the other was in Salt Lake City. Oh, I can imagine. Well, it could have been either one, but I have a feeling it's one that I might be familiar with. It is not. Oh, okay. So. Um, I, I just remembered a couple of weeks ago, I flew with this new guy. He was uh, uh, still on probation. But man, he could fly that jet. I mean, he was smooth. He had, it was as if that guy had been flying the airplane for four or five years. And I was very, very impressed with it. And then we were coming into Atlanta and coming in for landing. And, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, okay, uh, he should be starting to flare right now. You know, we're, we're getting the countdown. 50, 40, 30, 20. And I'm thinking, okay, he's going to flare now. 10, bam. <laughs> Okay, he didn't flare. <laughs> I felt so bad for him, too, because he'd flown the airplane so beautifully, you know, nice and smooth and everything else, and and uh, uh, didn't didn't really say, nothing really needed to be said. It was just like, ow, that was, that was a, a tough one. And I really feel bad for him having to stand in the door and say goodbye to everybody. But um, I, I did hear him getting some abuse from the passengers, and then I thought, okay, that's enough. And uh, I got on the PA and started using humor to, uh, you know, I said, this is Captain Crash here and, uh, you know, talk and try to kind of take the edge off of everything. And uh, everybody from that point on uh, just started joking around. I said, please do make sure that you tell the first officer what you thought of his landing. And uh, I said, he's not very happy about it, but I am because we are having a, a landing contest and I sure as heck have won it. After that, you know, so that kind of thing. And uh, I usually do that if I slam one on. And uh, again, it just takes the edge off. And people, instead of having this frown on their face and, you know, being upset about the whole thing, they're actually laughing about it. And, you know, it kind of breaks the ice or whatever. So he, he thanked me afterward. He said, thank for doing that. He said, because people are really giving me a bad time. And I said, you're welcome. I've done it several times for myself. Okay, uh, Steve has some questions for Dana, so we're going to skip that one. We'll, we'll put that back in the uh, staging queue for next episode, since Dana is no longer with us. That's right, I should mention oh, Did he that. die? I thought he'd just gone off with his Well, mate. I'm not sure. Oh, you know, we should probably say that, because uh, uh, I don't think we really said that Dana No, we haven't. I was just thinking to myself, yeah, uh, we, you'd know it if you were watching the video, because he's not there anymore. Wow. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's very clever. Uh, hang on. Put that thing back up there. Uh, Nick has wow. a drawing here. Wow. Wow. Oh, he is with us. Hey, Dana. How's it going? How many drinks have you had this morning? <laughs> oh, lots. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, Dana left us uh, after or during uh, or when we started playing uh, the uh, Plain Tales. Uh, he said he had some motorcycle riding to do. Uh-oh. If you're in the Daytona Beach area, watch out. Please be careful. Um, anyway, so this piece of feedback. Uh, unfortunately, if I'd known he was going to leave, I would have played this before he did. But uh, 
uh, kind of caught me off guard. But um, anyway, so let's move on to the next one in the queue, which is eight. Uh, Peter says, yesterday, just outside my apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a tourist helicopter crashed into the East River after an engine failure, killing five passengers on board. Looking out my kitchen window northeast up the river, I have a clear view of the LaGuardia approach path onto runway 22, and I'm often staring at that window. Fortunately, I didn't see yesterday's crash, but did watch much of the aftermath. New York City's bravest, the Coast Guard and police, did their heroic best. My hat's off to them and sorry for the loss of life. I'm curious, when there's an accident, are commercial pilots in the area made aware? Did the flights approaching LaGuardia have to do anything different because of the crash in the river and rescue operations? Blue skies and tailwinds, Peter. Well, Peter, I can tell you, I've, uh, it's been a while since I've flown in LaGuardia because they're uh, not allowing our mad dogs to fly in there anymore. Uh, but uh, I think in this situation, first of all, the uh, East River and the point where the helicopter went down is not that close to the airport, and it's kind of in that area. It's to the southwest of the airport where it's kind of between uh, corridors for people landing on runway four or taking off on two two or landing one three three one. Um, so it really we don't really fly over that area, so it doesn't affect it in that way. And as far as being made aware of what happened, unless we were on the same frequency, there's probably, uh, there would probably be no indication at all to us operating in and out of LaGuardia that this occurred. So no would be the answer. Uh, if I'd been flying that day, I wouldn't have known anything about it probably until I'd, uh, tuned in on the news. Now, different story. I mean, just going back to when we talked about this in the uh, news portion of this episode, um, for the uh, frequency that uh, this helicopter was on. Um, so certainly, those aircraft that are on that frequency can hear what's going on, and you can hear where they, you know, requested to go and take a look or help out, and were requested to. Um, so that's a little bit of a different story. If it's on the same frequency, then you're definitely going to know what's going on. Exactly. So exactly, and you'll notice. That when we listen to that five minutes of recording, whatever, you'd never once heard any airline um, call sign. Mm -hmm. So that indicates to me that it was a, a different sort of frequency that was uh, controlling that area, that low altitude sector, I guess, over there uh, near Manhattan Island. Yep. All right. Good question, though. Um, Jonathan. Oh, this is an interesting one. He says, greetings, APG crew. My name is Jonathan Alexandratos, the playwright professor you met at the New York City meetup months ago. Come back. Oh, that's right. That was the one that, that, was the one that Nick and myself were uh, present. And uh, Yes, that's right. I remember, I remember you, Jonathan. Um, this one's really for Captain Nick, who taught me about Eugene Bullard in his episode 311 plain tale, All Blood Runs Red. Shamefully, I didn't know about Ballard. Is that the way you pronounce it, Ballard? Uh, prior to yeah, I'm speaking French. I think it's okay. probably Ballard. I didn't know about Ballard prior to hearing that episode, but I was so glad to be educated via Captain Nick's incredibly well-told story. I was held in rapt attention through the entire episode, but when Captain Nick mentioned Eugene Ballard was buried at Flushing Cemetery, my ears perked up even more. I commute right past Flushing Cemetery every day on my way to and from the college where I teach. 
So today I got off the bus before my stop just so I could go to the cemetery, pay my respects, and take a couple of pictures for Captain Nick. It took me a moment to find the grave. As you can see, it isn't a large memorial, but a small grass-covered name placard. I cleared away some of the grass, threw out an empty Bacardi schnapps bottle that did not seem to be in tribute, (laughs) (laughs) and unearthed the tin toy biplane you see in the pictures. The plane itself was partly buried in a couple of pieces, but I was happy to put it together and place it next to Boulard who is uh, buried with a group of French soldiers and airmen. Flushing Cemetery is huge, and I would never pay it much attention as my bus drove past, instead letting it blend into the background of my daily commute. However, now I know better. This is, a, this is sacred ground for many reasons, not the least of which is it holds the first black fighter pilot. I only wish Ballard was given more. Flushing Cemetery is filled with towering statues and monuments, and one of those should be his. I'm inspired by the black superheroes we've seen on movie screens of late, and they make me hope for a world where we give all the real-life black heroes of history their due respect and appreciation. Hopefully, by sharing these pictures, I can contribute to the great work you started, Captain Nick, and increase awareness of this astounding historical figure who should never be forgotten. If you're ever in Flushing Cemetery, go to Section C, which runs right by 46th Avenue. You'll find Boulard right by the road, hopefully with a little toy biplane next to his final resting place. And then he uh, includes the pictures that he took in the in the uh, show notes. And I mean, they'll be in the show notes for all of you to look at. And he signs off by saying, best, Jonathan. And uh, there you go. So. Yeah, that was really kind of uh, Jonathan to do that, and particularly to send the pictures. Because uh, as we're assembling the Plain Tales uh, page for the website, um, I'm appending um, photographs as uh, title markers and uh, some additional uh, photographs uh, there just to illustrate the stories. And this will be just perfect uh, for that. So I've already. Um, sought uh, Jonathan's permission to use his picture on the website, and he says, kindly said we can, so that will be the title pitch for this, and it looks absolutely great. I love that little biplane. I think just mm-hmm. superb. So perfect. I thought at first, you know, before I read his his text, I thought that maybe he had brought that and, you know, put that there, but apparently had been buried there close by. Yeah, looking at the picture, it looks like it's been there maybe for a little while, too. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of... Uh, may I also mention to Jonathan, uh, he's saying it would be nice to have a meetup again in New York. I have a New York coming up next month, and I'll be at the New Yorker, uh, the Wyndham New Yorker, and uh, that is on uh, the night of the 12th, Thursday the 12th, and the morning of Friday the 13th. So if it works out, Thursday the 12th might be a good New York meetup. Well, uh, we'll let's see. I'll be in New York on the seventeenth. Ah, well, you, if you can come to Lagos, I'll join you there. No, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the offer. Yeah, I thought you might. Yeah. yeah, I'll be there. The what is that? Tuesday the seventeenth. Um, yeah, Tuesday the seventeenth. We fly into Newark. 
Um, and we leave out of Newark the next day, but it's a long enough layover where they put us in uh, Manhattan at the Roosevelt Hotel. So I'll be in, uh, would, they, would, would you call that Midtown um, Manhattan? Um, 40, like 45th, mm-hmm. 46th next to uh, Midtown. Grand Central? Okay. Yeah. So we should have a, a meetup then on the 17th. Mm. Yeah. I you need there. to drop that uh, Lag- Lagos <laughs> trip. Did I get it right? Lagos? Lagos. 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 <laughs> Lagos. Lagos. That's the one. Okay. And uh, the Hoovian Toy Company. Uh, enough of that. Okay. So thanks again, Jonathan, for that. It was a uh, uh, very nice feedback. I hope to have a chance to go visit the uh, Flushing Cemetery uh, sometime in the future myself. Did somebody did somebody say Flushing? <laughs> All right. I'm sure the citizens of Flushing, New York, really appreciate that. Yes. And they've never heard anything like that before, I'm sure. No, no, never, another, never. We've just lost another bunch of this. <laughs> Whoops. The whole Flushing New York. So much for the New York uh, meetup. (laughs) Okay. uh, Let's see. You know, we don't have a lot of time left. I know we've taken a few breaks here and there, but uh, I think we're getting close to that three-hour mark again. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything? Oh, yeah. I think we're actually. Are we? Well, I don't know. My recorder says three seconds. So. uh, Yeah, that's. (laughs) Mine says 327, but I started about nine minutes early. Right. And we did. we did take, take a, couple a small little breaks, break. Uh, that probably puts us right at the three-hour mark. Yeah, we're probably pretty close. And I know that I knew that we weren't going to be able to get all to all this feedback in the feedback folder because of the long news segment. Mm-hmm. Um, just taking a look here at the uh, items that we have remaining. Anything in there that you guys think that we should definitely cover uh, on this show before we close it? Mm, I think most of this stuff is pretty recent, so yeah. I don't think there's anything pressing. Okay. And there's nothing that's time sensitive. So, well, why don't we. I kind of like the very last one because it's funny. The number 16. Yeah, that is funny. Why don't we just quickly do that and then we'll do uh, Steve and number 13. Okay. Uh, 16, Luke. So we got this from Luke. Jeff and Dana, are one of you missing a bag on your flight? I assume that. That was dispatcher Mike driving by the suitcase in the truck as he was probably busy fetching electronics left by careless passengers. This is, uh, again, from Luke Langbing. And uh, so I guess at uh, the Hartsfield uh, Jackson International Airport in Atlanta, the um, somebody was looking out the window and noticed this uh, suitcase. It's one of those, I guess, on like four castering wheels. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was apparently set aside and the wind was blowing pretty strongly out of the, it looks like the north maybe, if I'm, if I'm orienting myself properly here, or it could be the opposite. But anyway, the wind was blowing and blowing the bag and the bag was going on its own like it had a mind of its own, like it was an, an animate object. Pretty quickly, too. Yeah. I'm amazed at how fast it was rolling. <laughs> Me too. Uh, and I guess a flight attendant for some airline happened to be there and pulled pulled out his uh, cell phone and started taking some video. So uh, you, you can look at the uh, Instagram uh, website of this flight attendant, which is interesting. 
Uh, but one of those interesting items is the uh, video from his camera of this uh, of this bag uh, zooming down the, uh, the the ramp, the apron. Very it reminded me so much of when I was on my first squadron and we had a really bad windy day and we weren't flying. And we had a, a senior officer on the squadron who wasn't very well liked. And he uh, always used to drive in with this very fancy Jaguar, which he parked in his special parking spot outside the front of the squadron. And it was a really windy day. And the engineers were out there on the line with these enormous uh, big square uh, toolboxes, big metal things on casters just like this. And uh, we were doing ground training. And suddenly someone spotted one of these things set off across the apron in exactly the same way this <laughs> was. And, of course, we're all cheering, and no one's paying any attention to the lecturer, and we're all looking out the window cheering because we can see where it's going. <laughs> and then the upstairs window blew open, well, thrown open by this flight commander uh, who was out there screaming at the engineers to stop this thing. Stop that! Stop that! Stop that! Stop back! And it, didn't, it just went into the back of his Jaguar doing about 20 miles an hour. Oh, man. That did some damage. Yeah. Huge cheer from downstairs. <laughs> it was a perfect DH. We love Really that. made your day. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. Uh, thank you, Luke, for that. And again, check it out. Check the video out in the show notes. You'll uh, You'll be amused. And then finally, uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Ivey writes to help with some feedback that we received from an earlier episode uh, regarding, I think it was Joe, uh, sent, us, sent us some feedback regarding advice from going from cabin crew to cockpit crew. And uh, so without further ado, let's listen to Stephen with some advice for Joe. Stephen Ivey, the survey pilot from uh, West Georgia, currently conducting aerial survey over uh, somewhere in the United States. I uh, was just listening to the latest episode and uh, heard that Joe was looking for some advice on how to transition from uh, cabin crew or ground staff over to uh, the flight crew. Um, I'm not overly familiar with uh, the European uh, cadet schemes and all that, like Captain Nick mentioned, but I do know that's usually your best way of getting in from not having any time to um, getting your experience to come work at the airlines. Um, I know some of the bigger, I think BA, British Airways, uh, Lufthansa Group. Now, when I say Lufthansa Group, I'm talking about the uh, company that actually owns Lufthansa because they recruit pilots for Lufthansa, Austrian, Austrian Airlines, I believe one other one I can't think of right now, but um, look into those and see what their requirements are. Um, I know a lot of them require a college education and things like that, and there's also, um, there is some money I believe you have to pay as well, but uh, you can look into those. Um, you also might want to look at the Pilot Rumor Network Forum. I know that sounds really sketchy, but um, I am told it provides a lot of good information for um, finding work overseas with various airlines. Uh, that website is pprune.org. Um, and you can probably connect with somebody up there that might be able to give you some better uh, information on how to make that transition. Um, 
I can tell you, though, that most of the European airlines, um, if you do get into that cadet program, you'll do a little bit of your training in Europe, and then you also may come over here to the United States and do some of your training down in uh, South Florida. Um, so just just some different things to look at there, and I hope that helps you out. Um, for those that are in the United States and that are thinking about doing it, um, I used to be a uh, flight attendant for uh, a regional airline here in the United States, and I also worked the ramp uh, for Acme uh, Global Services. Um, and, you know, every time you would talk to a pilot or anybody, they'd tell you, ah, well, you know, you do this, do this, do this. Well, about the time I was getting this information, the uh, 1,500-hour rule got implemented, so... It was good information at the time, but it's kind of different now. Um, so if you're in the United States, it's usually the best way to transition is either um, abandon being a cabin crew member and attend college through a 141 program, so that way you can get the reduced hours restrictions um, to get to your ATP and all that. That's generally the easiest way to do it. Um, if you prefer to keep working, as a cabin crew member or any other job for that matter. Um, just put back your money, uh, try to find you a side job. Um, I myself, I worked at the power company and I also uh, did Uber in my free time to uh, help fund the ownership of an aircraft um, that I used to build time in. And um, a lot of people will tell you that that's a good way to build time. And, and it is, um, it's just not necessarily the cheapest option when maintenance comes up but if you have a group of people that you can partner up with to build time you know you can do it that way um, other than that you just really have to make your best effort for it um, don't be afraid to ask people questions on how they got there um, you know as Nick said him and Jeff uh, both came from the military route so that makes things a little bit different both on the European side and the uh, United States side of things but don't, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, the aviation community is actually a lot smaller than you think it is. Um, connecting with one person could land you a job somewhere else. Um, I know just me traveling around doing this job, I ran into another survey crew um, and found out about another job I could possibly pick up this summer. So there's always opportunities out there. Don't So just always talk to people whenever you get the chance. But Hope this uh, feedback helps you out in your endeavor to transition from the cabin crew to the flight deck crew. And uh, hope everyone else is doing well. And I'll uh, send you some more feedback about myself and what's going on with the survey life in the future. Take care, y'all. Steve and Ivy, the survey life. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it'll get better for him, though. I, oh. I know he's just drilling holes in the sky right now, but... Uh, Soon we'll be able to drill holes in the sky for an airline. Well, mm -hmm. and he's been—he's uh, able to do something productive like record audio feedback while he's drilling yes. the holes and <laughs> flying the lines. Yeah, exactly. I wrote a whole plane tail. Yeah, would that make him a line pilot because he flies the lines? He's flying oh, lines back good. and forth. Yeah. Across <laughs> <the> <laughs> anyway, thanks, Stephen, for taking the time to do that. I'm sure Joe will appreciate it, and I will uh, send him your contact information uh, directly via email. So uh, if he has any more questions, he'll be able to uh, get in touch with you. That's what's so great about this APG community. Everybody, you know, helps everybody out here. We're all one big family. You bet. So mm -hmm. anyway, uh, looks like we're going to have to put off the uh, rest of the items that we had selected for our feedback on the show, like uh, Ben asking a question about aircraft deliveries across the pond. 
Luke uh, was going to help us uh, or help me identify the crop duster that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Um, ben was talking about driving a finger. <laughs> driving in a, f- a finger into what? <laughs> I could do that. Yeah. And, uh, hey, now, family <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I was even thinking of that stuff. Oh, my. Uh, preparing for uh, Glider. No, no, no. Just his, I was only referring to what he actually broadcast on the video. Oh, oh okay. So, yeah, right. I'm not sure if you were paying attention to that, no. but uh, anyway. Uh, let's see. Chuck has a question about. Good grief. Yeah, good grief. Uh, Chuck has a question about preparing for Glider ratings. And uh, Miles um, asks a question about air refueling for commercial aircraft. So that and so much more, including perhaps your feedback. You can send it to feedback at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Head over to the Airline Pilot Guy website. We have a feedback form there as well. That's AirlinePilotGuy.com. And uh, the apps that we have available, uh, the Airline Pilot Guy apps in both the iOS App Store and the Google Play Store for um, – <laughs> Android. Thank you. IOS, Android. Android. I knew it started with a name. You're going for? Yeah, Google Play Store for Android. Man, I'm going to have to retire soon. I can't think straight. We're going to um, do your uh, checkup. Yeah, I, do. I, need, drive, I need a psychological checkup, I think. <laughs> uh, let's see. And uh, social media, Steph. Oh, I'm back to doing social media. Nick did such a good job filling in for me. Well, while we can, Nick can do it. I'm gonna, if you want, no, I'm no, going to no, talk no. about. I'm going to talk about meetups okay. in a second. Okay, perfect. Social media. You can head over to Twitter. Our handle there is at APG Crew and interact with us. Um, we're all there and um, happy to answer your questions or comments. Same thing on Facebook. Facebook.com/slash Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, more stuff available there because it's not limited to that 280 characters. Um, but people do share articles and interesting aviation-related things, and we're all there as well. There you go. And uh, I mentioned Slack earlier in the show, and you can become part of the Slack group by listening to this guy here. Hello. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. And I think that Nick has one more mention of something that's occurring uh, relatively soon after this show. Yeah, well, we'd mentioned it at the uh, top of the broadcast, but uh, that was too early for the those uh, Franciscans to take account of because they have just got up. But uh, uh, for those in the area of San Francisco, I'll be heading off down to the Thirsty Bear Organic Brewery, which is on 661 Howard Street in San Francisco. Um, by the way, a San Franciscan, is that a, an order of monks? I, I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, so if you want to join our special order of uh, San Franciscans and the APG community come uh, and join us this afternoon uh, down there uh, and by the time this is out the podcast guys forget about it you're too late <laughs> so if anyone's around I'll be down there from about uh, I don't know it opens at 12 so just after 12 probably until about 5 in the afternoon I know Fred's coming down good chance Tim Van Ram will be uh, down um, and uh, Jamie I think uh, a, a budding pilot there Hmm. <laughs> Wait for it. Uh, anyway, there you go. Oh, he's back. 
Oh, damn. Which bit did you miss? Jamie, budding pilot. Who, uh, who was going to be meeting up with you? Yeah, Jamie, budding pilot. Might be Landon, uh, might be anyone else who's uh, in the area who has nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon than uh, drink beer and talk to pilots. That'd be great. Well, what else is there? <laughs> exactly. All right. Outstanding. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. All the best, everybody. Good day.